When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. think of a group of people that I would rather spend the weekend with than you. And we are going to start the weekend off as we do each and every weekend, at least the first hour of our last program, with your opportunity to ask me anything that you'd like about anything. That's right. You have questions about politics, uh, broadcasting, radio, pro wrestling, baseball, my personal life, anything at all. Now's the time to ask it. The only thing that we would ask is that you ask questions. Don't give a whole monologue and then at the end of your monologue say, right? Ask questions because it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank... Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. We also want to, this morning, welcome aboard our newest affiliate... W-U-C-T in Upper Cumberland, Tennessee. That's right. Heard on 1600 AM and News Talk 94.1 FM. I like being on FM because I'm Frank Morano. We want to welcome aboard the good folks over at W-U-C-T. They have a great lineup and uh, we're privileged to be a part of it. And... In honor of this being your first week with the program, WUCT in Tennessee, anybody that calls from WUCT in Tennessee, News Talk 94.1, we are going to bump you to the front of the line. So just tell Kenneth that you are uh, calling from WUCT. All right. uh, Without further ado, let us get to your questions. Anything and anything, anything and everything is up for grabs. Let me begin with. Igor in New Jersey. Hello, Igor. Greetings, Frank. Hey, on any number of occasions, you've said that the Kathy Hochul campaign has made mistakes. And given the fact that Kathy Hochul is who she is, she has her record and all that, um, I wanted to ask you about what do you think the campaign manager did wrong? What would you do differently? And uh, I was wondering if you could give us some insight into the life of a campaign manager does, if he did a really bad job, will this guy have a hard time finding a new job? Well, How often are these people looking for jobs? Yeah, so it's a good question. I'm not sure who specifically uh, Governor Hochul's campaign manager was, and I'm not sure who gets to make decisions. Now, usually for a big campaign like uh, like a governor's race, 
it's usually not one person like it is in a local race that's the campaign manager, that's the be-all and end-all. Usually a lot of candidates will hire what they call a GC or general consultant, and then the general consultant will be the person that hires the campaign manager, the field director, the treasurer, and everybody else. Uh, that being said, um, I think the, the – I mean I, I touched upon this a little bit last week, but the biggest problem that Governor Hochul made – was betting this whole campaign on abortion. And uh, I think she should have, her answer to the crime problem in New York should not have been, oh, it's not really that bad or it's a perception problem. As Governor Cuomo, who was on with John Katsimatidis yesterday, said, you can't just tell people what they're seeing they're not seeing. He was exactly right about that. And I think Al Sharpton on MSNBC made a, uh, made a another, you know, made another call on that, saying the same thing. And I think Governor Hochul should have recognized that the crime issue was a problem and she should have done whatever she could to call the legislature back into session and kept them there until they did away with cashless bail and raise the age and the rest. Additionally, her whole campaign every single day for the last five months should have been two two messages, more cops, less guns, more cops, less guns. When her husband says good morning to her in the morning and good night to her at night, the la- what she should be saying is we need more cops and less guns. How do you dispute that? But she didn't say it. She was very, very vocal on the less guns argument. But, um, I mean, all her ads were focused on abortion, not even guns until the very end. But she didn't say anything about getting more cops. So she had to do things that the left wing didn't like which is say more cops, more cops, more cops, and I'm going to put it in my budget and we're going to fund more cops. And she had to do things that the right wing didn't like and say we need fewer guns on the streets, especially fewer assault weapons. So she missed a golden opportunity there. Additionally, I don't know why a candidate that's never run for governor before would have uh, agreed to only one debate in the primary. She was a heavy favorite in the primary. She'd bought off all the key constituencies. She'd bought off all the labor unions. And by agreeing to, I, I think maybe she agreed to two, but I think it was only one. By agreeing to only one or two debates in the primary, she made sure that she was a weak general election candidate. Had she agreed to five primary debates, one her primary opponents, Jamani Williams and Tom Suozzi, couldn't have said anything against her. And two, she would have been better prepared for every possible counterargument in the general election. Additionally, the first choice she made as governor, and I realize this is more of a governmental choice than a political choice, but the first choice that she made as governor was to appoint a criminal as her lieutenant governor, Brian Benjamin. Now, this was what they call in tennis an unforced error. There was no reason that she couldn't foresee that Brian Benjamin was a crook. I talked about it. Everybody talked about it. It was written about not just in conservative publications, but liberal publications as well. Why she would make that her first pick was a tremendous mistake. So part of it was messaging. Part of it was policy. Part of it was strategic. And uh, those are some of the um, some of the mistakes that she made. Again, I don't know exactly who was uh, making decisions and who had the title of campaign manager, and I don't know who had the actual authority to steer the ship of the Hoko campaign. But uh, unfortunately, one of the things that we see, not just in politics but in government, is if you mess up, if you fail grandly, chances are you usually just get another job. 800-848-9222. That's 800 848 
888-900-9222. Let me say hello to Fred in New Jersey. Hello, Fred. Frank, uh, Curtis said, Dr. Oz lost because he's a carpetbagger. My question to you is, what is a carpetbagger? Well, um, the way it's used now is just somebody that's not from a given community. It's a political candidate who seeks election in an area where they have no local connections. Somebody like Hillary Clinton in New York in 2000 or Robert F. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy in New York in 1968. I guess the case could be made for Alan Keyes back in 2004 when he ran in uh, Illinois or, um, or Dr. Oz in uh, Pennsylvania. It comes from the... Civil War, uh, because what would happen during the Civil War is you had these people, uh, Southerners, that would uh, describe these opportunistic Northerners who would come into the Southern states after the Civil War, and they were perceived to be exploiting the local populace, and they had these kind of, instead of regular suitcases or regular valises, they would have a bag that was made out of carpet. That's where the phrase come from. comes from, because... It was these folks that weren't from the South that were going into the South to kind of run things. And uh, look, I guess the case uh, could be made that Dr. Raz was a carpetbagger as well. 800-848-9222. But if, um, if he had won, nobody would be saying that, right? Uh, Hillary Clinton, she was certainly a carpetbagger by any de- definition when she ran for U.S. Senate in New York. And she won. Nobody calls her a carpetbagger anymore, right? Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Peter is in Harlem. Hello, Peter. Yes, sir. Frank, I had the unfortunate experience twice to hear the former governor interviewed on one of the early, one of the later shows. I wasn't satisfied. How would you approach an interview with the former governor? Governor, uh, what's his name? Cuomo. Cuomo. Yes. Uh, well, hang up and listen. Yeah, okay. it's a good question, Peter. So I think part of the reason and. Um, I'm going to be reaching out to Governor Cuomo to see if he wants to have do an interview with me. But I've reached out to John Katzmatidis and Lydia Serrani and others and and basically said some of the things that I would ask Governor Cuomo. And again, I've never been rude to anybody in my life, uh, and especially not on the radio. I, honestly, I haven't. And if the governor were here, and I am going to try and get him on this show, and I'm going to be as respectful and polite to him as I am to anybody that's a guest on this show. But... The first question that uh, I would ask him, and I've done commentaries on this on the on WABC in New York, is I don't know how you go around pontificating about crime when you're the guy that signed bail reform. I mean, does your house not have any mirrors? I mean, do you not recognize the fact that you played a pretty significant role in what we're seeing? And I'm all for forgiving people. And I'm all for allowing people to explain what they did and then move on to something else, right? I mean, I think we covered that with Anthony Weiner when Anthony Weiner was here for two hours. But for Governor Cuomo not to even acknowledge his role in bail reform, it's like he was the chief executive of uh, Fantasyland. I mean, it's insane. So my very first question would be, Governor, you've talked a lot about crime and the failure of Democrats messaging on crime, do you take some responsibility for that because of your signing of cashless bail and because of your signing of uh, Raise the Age and because of your advocacy for closing Rikers Island? Do you take some responsibility for that? 
If he says yes, and I regret it, then okay, we can have a real discussion. But if he says no, then we're just talking on two totally different levels. But that would be uh, how I would approach things to start. 800-848-9222. And then also, I would ask him, you know, uh, it seems like he's been pretty critical of Kathy Hochul. Why did you pick Kathy Hochul as your lieutenant governor running mate? Honestly, what did you see in her that you thought she should be a heartbeat away from the governor's chair? Uh, That's number one. Also, I would ask him about Tish James. Did you vote for Tish James? If not, for whom did you vote? If you did vote for Tish James, how can you vote for someone that you've described as their whole investigation being motivated entirely by politics and personal ambition? If you didn't vote for Tish James, for whom did you vote? Did you vote for the Republican, Michael Henry? If you did vote for the Republican, are there any other Republicans that you vote for, voted for? Did you write in someone? Uh, did you urge somebody to be written in? So uh, those are some of the questions that we would that we would cover. Uh, 800-848-922, which is probably why he'll never come on this show, honestly. Uh, all right. Let me say hello to Pat in New Jersey. Hello, Pat. Hi, Frank. A lot of we women love to hear about your family. So oh, that's nice. Thank I've you. I've got three questions for you. Okay. Number one, you said your mom is semi-retired. Does she offer to babysit or do you ever ask her to? Number two, um, what's been decided about Carmine's birthday party? You're having a lot of people. And is Curtis invited? And number three, how is your aunt doing who makes the egg salad? She's got COVID. Uh, so let me, I'll work backwards, right? So uh, number three, my aunt Camille is, uh, she, I called her yesterday. She sounded, she sounded good. To me, she sounded normal. But I asked her how she was feeling. She said she still feels uh, crummy and uh, she didn't want me to, uh, to to come visit. So, But she sounded a lot better than she did just a few days ago. So I'm hoping oh, uh, the fact that she sounded a lot better is an indication that uh, she'll be over that soon. Um, uh, two, so we're going to – I alluded to this yesterday, but we're going to have uh, just family for, our, uh, for Carmine's first birthday. And that covers a lot of ground. You know, I have three siblings. My wife has eight siblings. I have um, I have uh, parents and step parents and uh, a mother in law. They're all invited, and we invited all my first cousins and their their husbands and their children. So that is a lot of ground. And my uh, many of my second cousins. So no, Curtis is not invited because whenever I invite Curtis to something, he just pretends like he wasn't he doesn't get invited. I invited Curtis to something recently. I don't remember what it was, and. Um, And I said to him, oh, I just want to let you know, I'm sure I know you're busy because you have to be on the radio. And uh, he said and I said, I want you to let you know you're invited. And his response was, oh, I didn't hear that. I didn't hear that. I'm going to pretend that I didn't hear that. So it's fine. I mean, it's we're going to do it on a Saturday anyway, the Saturday after Thanksgiving, just something small at the house. But we're not going to. But so we know he couldn't make it because he's got to be on the radio, but he was certainly invited. And then um, my mom works five days a week. So she she is not usually available during the week. But, yes, she does uh, look after Carmine on the weekend from time to time when we have to do something. And uh, she seems to really enjoy it. We're going to talk about uh, the perils of grandparenting a little bit later. 800-848-9222. Eddie is in New Jersey. Hello, Eddie. Hi, Frank. I have two questions. Sure. Uh, first of all, I want to know if you could tell me, has there been a call in the Oregon governor's race or the Alaska governor's race? Um, my understanding is, um, I don't know if there's been an official call in in either place, but in 
in Oregon, I know the uh, Democrats seem to have a a lead that was pretty prohibitive, and I didn't see that uh, that changing. Um, so I think, yeah, uh, as of an hour ago, uh, Tina Kotek, the Democrat running for governor, she has been declared the uh, the winner in the uh, in the governor's race in Oregon. And as far as Alaska goes, um, I know Dunleavy, the incumbent Republican, was leading, and they say he was poised to win, but I don't know that they've officially made a call there. Mm-hmm. Number two, I want to ask you. You're saying you get, you got this new affiliate now in Tennessee, and ever since you got those two new affiliates in in Nevada, it seems like you're going strong and, and racking up more stations. Um, I want to know, first of all, how many you have in how many states, and what's the process? Like, it seems like suddenly the dam opened up and it's all coming. Are, is that connected? Well, uh, well, so I don't really know, honestly. So uh, we're on in Nevada. We're on WCBM in Baltimore. We're on in uh, Anchorage, Alaska, KBYR. We're on in Tennessee. We're on on uh, 107.1 FM on uh, on Long Island. And um, where there's a few other stations that I think are going to be launching in the next week or two. I think a lot of stations, you know, the stations that are owned by iHeart, they're um, probably going to be carrying the iHeart programming, which is coast to coast. Because if you own a station and you own a show, you want the stations you own to carry the programming that you have. The stations that are owned by Cumulus... They're going to be carrying the Cumulus programming, which is uh, Red Eye Radio. There's a station in New York on the uh, FM dial that uh, that carries them. But for everybody else, I, I don't think you could look at the numbers that we've put up in New York and in Baltimore and say, yeah, I think we should be carrying another show. I mean, we are trouncing both Coast to Coast and Red Eye Radio in the uh, in the ratings. So I think there's going to be a lot of other stations once they see the we hear the story that we've been telling about what we've done in New York and wanting to carry the show. But as far as the process goes, the stations just have to essentially tell us that they want it. Now, I'd love to be carried in Atlantic City. Love to be carried in Philadelphia. Love to be carried in uh, in Boston and uh, and Los Angeles. Right. So, if anybody is listening to us online in any of those cities, please tell your favorite talk station there that you think that uh, they should carry us. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, as long as I get to be on the radio every day, I am a big winner. Big winner. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We'll continue with your questions in just a minute. And by the way, we had a big meeting last week. And at that meeting, it was agreed that we would restore giving a prize to whomever came up with the best question. I'm not sure if the prize is a mug or a shirt or a cap, but it's a prize. Um, Matt, do you remember what it is? Do you remember? Uh, I know there was an email about this. It is a hat or a shirt, I believe. Uh, Do they get to choose or we get to choose? They can choose. Oh, they can choose. Hat or shirt. All right. Okay, so uh, you get to choose if you want a cap or if you want a shirt, uh, if you have the best question as determined by Matt Blaze, Kenneth, and sitting in the Alex Barnard chair today, Christian. Christian, not Christian Arnold, but another Christian that worked here who was a very good guy, and uh, he's now you know filling in again for Alex Barnard. Thrilled to have him back as well, Christian Matos. And uh, he is going to be participating in the question selection process. We'll continue with your questions as we do Ask Frank Anything straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 
What is this? Frank Morano. Hey, the weekend is here, at least for me. In three and a half hours, I will be off to start the weekend. And uh, the first hour of our final show of the week, we end by giving you, well, we begin the program by giving you an opportunity to ask questions about whatever you like. It's time for The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. And it is Veterans Day, so we have uh, a couple of very interesting veterans that you're going to hear from uh, throughout the course of the program. And we're going to be talking about a lot of different aspects of the veteran journey, including some aspects that don't necessarily get talked about. Some happy, some sad. All, I think, will make you think. And we're going to get into that throughout the uh, next couple hours. By the way, my thanks to everybody that has served this country in uniform, whether you are a combat veteran or whether you you know, played football in Germany. Uh, if you've put on the uniform of the United States military, you've done a lot more than I've ever done. For this country. So uh, so thank you, honestly and sincerely. And uh, I don't mean to sound patronizing, but uh, I am really always in awe and quite inspired by people that have voluntarily chosen to join the military. And I was very uh, proud and have always been very honored to be named for um, my grandfather, Frank Morano, who was a Purple Heart recipient for his service in World War II. And my uncle Caesar uh, now, I never knew my grandfather, but uh, my uh, paternal grandfather, but my uncle Caesar was a uh, somebody that I was very close to. And in many respects, he was also almost like a grandparent to me. And he died a couple of years ago and I, I, I miss him. But um, I'm very proud that uh, he was a uh, triple war veteran, served in World War Two, served in the Korean War and served in uh, the Vietnam War. So always been very proud to be. Related to him. And when he passed away, he gave me his uh, uniform. And um, obviously I would never wear it. But when he before he passed away, he sent this to me and he said, I think we're about the same size. And I think this would probably fit you. So um, my awe, my I am in awe of anybody that served in the uh, military. And I know that makes a lot of veterans uncomfortable, but uh, that happens to be the truth. 800-848-9222. Henry is in Manhattan. Hello, Henry. Henry. Thank you, Henry. Jennifer is in Boston. Hello, Jennifer. Hey, Frank. Good to hear you. Um, and a couple of questions for you, if I could. Sure. Um, but first, I like you. Quick shout out and, and just my endless gratitude to the veterans, um, to all who served on behalf of this great nation, so we may enjoy our freedom, our liberties. Um, we owe everything to them. Without them, we are not. So, um I, like you, have family members that have served. I'm profoundly grateful, and I think that any of us should take a moment to, um, like Pete said earlier, if you can go to a parade, if you can buy a cup of coffee or a meal, just go up and acknowledge someone's service. Um, Not just today, but whenever you see someone in uniform, it means the world to them. We have a um, National Guard um, place down the street in Armory, and you go by, you 
you know, I'll stop, I'll beat the horn, I'll have a conversation, I shout out thanks. It, it, you can't even believe how they, they light up like Christmas trees. They're just so happy just to be thanked, you know. They don't ask for much, and they, they give us everything. So thank you for letting me say that. Sure. Um, and um, thank you for your acknowledgement. Um, and uh, in regarding you, Frank, I had a question about I, – I was intrigued. Um, I know you went to NYU. So I know, and I just know by the way you speak, you're, you're, you know, very well read, very intelligent. And I think you uh, absorb knowledge like a sponge, but I was curious, what were your high school years like um, socially and like academically? Did you enjoy the structure of high school or were you more of a freewheeling learner? Did you, you know, were you athletic? Were you on the chess club? Did you have a girlfriend? That sort of uh, well, uh, all good questions, Jennifer. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'll um, do my best to answer them. I um, So when I was, in terms of what I was like in high school, I'm, and I'm not being, um, you know, I'm not trying to not answer the question. I was exactly the same as I am now. Exactly. I sounded the same uh, ex- with the exception of a few more gray hairs that I have now. I looked exactly the same. I was a, a bit thinner than I was in slightly better shape. I was working out a little bit more. But other than that, I was exactly the same. My interests were the same. My uh, A lot of my social group was the same. Almost Very little has changed about the kind of person that I was. When I was in high school, I hosted a uh, public access television show. Uh, That public access television show was very popular, but it wasn't necessarily that popular with high school students. It was mostly popular with adults. And uh, because of that, I was a very unique character in high school, which is I was uh, popular with adults in the high school, the teachers mainly. And that that gave me a lot of uh, clout in high school because if I was ever late with the homework or if I ever didn't show up to class... I would have this um, cadre of fans, which the faculty was, that was very eager to forgive that, probably a little too eager. Additionally, I was uh, friendly with um, a lot of the other folks that enjoy – because, you know, all of the department heads, the principal, the teachers, they would all treat me as a peer – They would talk about politics and radio and television and theater and movies as if I was a peer, not a student. And um, probably I would I probably could have been treated a bit more like a student. My grades were average, average, completely unacceptable, unexceptional, because even though I think that I was somewhat bright, I was not really that interested in doing schoolwork. I never did homework. I hated homework, never did it. So if it was a course that I was interested in, like American history or political science or something along those lines, I would test very well. But even in those courses, I never did the, um, never did the, the homework. I did not have a girlfriend in, uh, in high school because I was mainly so busy doing everything else I was doing. I was working for the Brooklyn Cyclones. Uh, I was... Um, doing some other things. I was uh, hosting this public access television program, and um, I was uh, very active in politics, very active in a lot of political campaigns. So uh, by and large, except for the odd hours that I keep now and having a wife and a child, I was exactly the same as I am now. And uh, just one quick anecdote. And I had a lot of friends in high school, and I had a wide social group as I do now. But, you know, they had this thing in my senior year, and I think most schools have something like this, where you can uh, nominate and vote for the best this and the best that. They called it senior best, I think. And um, I knew the people that were counting the votes for this because they were juniors. And the juniors came to me, this one young girl, a young woman, Christy, 
And she said, you have no idea what a problem you're causing for the senior best nominations. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, you are leading in every single category that you're nominated in, almost. I don't, I don't think I was nominated for best athlete, uh, but I think I was nominated for – or best couple because I wasn't in a couple – but I was nominated in every other category, uh, most likely to succeed, most likely to be famous, best dressed, uh, whatever else. And they said, they're not going to let you win this. And this person said to me, um, they're going to let you just win the one category that you got the most votes in. So I heard about this, and I didn't think that was fair. I thought I should win all the categories that I got the most vote in, votes in. So we had this meeting, all the people that were nominated in any of these categories. And meanwhile, they don't know that I know that I'm leading. In all these categories. So um, I said, I bring up at this meeting, hey, by the way, what happened? Oh, 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 I remember. I go to one of the other uh, young men that's nominated in multiple categories. I said, John, I am hearing that they may only let people win one category. And meanwhile, I knew that I was leading in all these categories. And he said, what? That's not fair. I said, no, of course it's not fair. It should be whoever gets the most votes. And I said, yes. And, and I took a line from The Simpsons. I said, what happens when we treat people as equal when they're clearly not equal? What do we call that? And uh, that's communism. And I said, if you bring this up, I will 100% back you up. Now, meanwhile, it was completely um, disingenuous on my part because I, I knew that I was leading in all these categories. So this guy, John, brings this up. And I agreed with him in this meeting. And the head of the SO, Miss um, T, n- nice woman. I think she just retired last year. She might still be teaching. But um, she, she said, theoretically, you mean to tell me if Frank Morano is leading in every single category you're, and wins every single category, you're going to be okay with that? And uh, this guy said, yes, absolutely, because he thought he was leading in every single category. So um, what they did was they decided to get let everyone win up to two awards. So the, I think the two awards that I won were most likely to be famous and class individual. Now, I can tell you that I am the most individual person out of that Tottenville High School class. As far as most likely to be famous, I'm not sure that uh, there's anybody more famous than me. So I would think the student body chose well in both of those. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to John in Plainview. Hello, John. Hello, Frank. Uh, the reason why I was calling is I really enjoy your show. It's fantastic. Thank I, you. I, I listen to it every night. And I was wondering if you knew about this. Uh, you know, William Shatner is going to be at the Count Basie Theater in Red Bank, and he's doing the Wrath of Khan show. I forgot the date. If you go on Ticketmaster.com, the tickets have been on sale. I I was wondering if you're going to – I know you're a big Star Trek fan. I was wondering if you're going to be going to the show. You know, I didn't know about that. I'm going to look it up right now. And uh, I am a a huge fan of that picture. Uh, And I don't know if you heard my interview with Nicholas Meyer, who directed that film, uh, maybe a month or so ago. I'm looking at the date now. It looks like it's going to be on uh, Friday, February 10th. You know, Friday is one of the few nights that I can actually attend things. Uh, I'm going to talk to my wife, and uh, if we're in town, um, I'm going to see if, uh, which we should be, I'm going to see if she's up for going, and I'd love to go to that, actually. Oh, well, I'm glad uh, I made the call. Yeah, same here, same here. It's a great picture, and there's um, not only is Shatner great in it, 
But uh, Ricardo Montalban is great in it, and Kirstie Alley is great in one of her first major roles. You know what a fan I am of Kirstie Alley. And uh, as I said to Nicholas Meyer when he was on this show, there's a strong case to be made that that is the best Star Trek film that there ever was. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Dylan in Ontario. Hello, Dylan. Hey, Frank. How's it going, dude? It, thank you very much for taking well. my call. Sure. Thanks for calling. And thank you very much for finally getting the 77 WABC store to ship to Canada. Well, I'm glad now, you got your uh, I'm glad you got your merch. Thanks for caring. Thank you. All right. So, here's my question. Who is the who is the best DJ and who is the worst DJ you ever listened to? Um, well, worst DJ is tough because in, in this day and age, um, there are, there are not that many DJs. Mostly things are just uh, just tracked and mostly played by computers. Best DJ, and I've answered this question before. I think there's a strong case to be made for Cousin Brucey. I think uh, Dan Ingram was also yeah. terrific. I think Scott Muni was also uh, terrific. Uh, those are the ones that most immediately come to mind. In terms of worst DJ, I don't know. You know, I, I, I have always been, and thanks for the call, Dylan, I've always been more interested in talk than music. I do listen to music, and I do like the role of the DJ. And you know who's actually been a great DJ in various incarnations? Mark Simone. Mark Simone is terrific. Great set of pipes, a lot of knowledge of music, and a great taste in music. So, um... I, but if I had gone to my head, I'm picking Cousin Brucey as the best. I don't know if I can make a pick for the worst, honestly. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Joel in Manhattan. Hello, Joel. Hi, Frank. Hi. I hope that uh, that uh, cold symptom you were talking about, it went away. And it didn't get worse. Yeah, no, I'm at about 95%. I should be back uh, okay, uh, back, to, back to normal taking... tomorrow. All right. Now, the question I have, right, it's regarding this very important to me, you know. Sure. I've been thinking a lot about it. If Republicans were inherently, historically, politically, they were also pro-choice as much as the Dems are, mm-hmm. wouldn't they have had a far better chance to come up winners in the elections, including Zeldin? Well, it depends on the state. But in New York, the answer is 100 percent unequivocally yes. I, I think, you know, if the Republicans had nominated, for instance, um, the the uh, one of the candidates that was running for governor this year who uh, didn't end up uh, who didn't didn't end up winning. Uh, obviously, there was a, um, a heated primary between Giuliani, Astorino Zeldin and, um, you know, another uh, another fellow, Harry Wilson, had they nominated Harry Wilson, who was pro-choice, what could Kathy Hochul have said about him in the general election? All of her ads were focused on abortion. What could she have said negatively about Harry Wilson? Harry Wilson wasn't a Trumper. He wasn't pro-life. There is nothing they could have said about Harry Wilson. What could they have said? That he was for Ronald Reagan? Well, New York voted for Ronald Reagan. If the Republicans had nominated Harry Wilson, you would have seen Kathy Hochul lose. So, yes. One follow-up question. One quick Mm follow-up question. If the Supreme Court had not overturned, you know, uh, I know uh, you, I think you said at one point, you know, uh, that they had to do it or maybe never. The, uh, if they had not overturned 
Roe v. Wade at this point, hence opening a Pandora's box. You know, uh, would the uh, Republicans have a, uh, had a, a much, much better chance of winning? I think so. I, I think so. But it's impossible to know. Right. I mean, you can only you can only go with with the with what you know. Right. So I think um, I think the Republicans, w- w- no question, were hurt, especially in blue states by that abortion decision by the Supreme Court. But if they had just been wise enough to nominate a pro-choice candidate, they would have won. I mean, the fact that Zeldin came as close as he did is incredible. It's incredible. A pro-life, pro-Trump, pro-gun, conservative Republican getting 47% of the vote in a state as blue as New York, it's remarkable. And it's a, it's a testament to him and his team. I never thought he was going to come this close. But yes, had they um, run a pro-choice candidate, they would have won. They absolutely would have won. 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your questions straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is certainly an appropriate song for election week. Queen, I want to break free. All right. Uh, we are answering your questions on any subject. We, we encourage people to call in with creative questions, out-of-the-box questions, different questions, questions that not only make me think, but make the people listening think. And whoever comes up with the best question in the uh, eyes and ears of Kenneth Christian and Matt Blaze, we're going to give you a prize. 800-848-9222. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank... Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Let me say hello to Eric. Eric in Manhattan, what's your question? Oh, hey, Frank. Um, have you ever heard of or been let go from uh, her someone being let go from a job and not being told why? Like being fired and not being told why? Uh, yes. Yes, I legal? have, unfortunately. Oh. Is that legal or happened to you? I'm, I'm, On, it's that, never happened to legal? me. It's never happened to me, thankfully. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, right. it is legal. And um, and know. it happens far too often, as far as I'm concerned, Eric. Thank you. And, you know, I, I know a lot of conservative listeners get upset when I say this, but that is one of the many reasons I am pro-labor union. Pro-labor union, especially in the private sector. If you're part of a union, they can't get away with that stuff. Uh, the union stands up for you and fights for you. And usually, um, especially if it's a powerful union like the union I'm a member of, SAG-AFTRA, they don't let you get away with that stuff. And I, again, point to the example of Bernard McGurk. Bernard McGurk did not lose a day of pay after getting fired by the, um, you know, for the Rutgers, uh, you know, nappy-headed incident. And that's only because he was a member of a union. Had he not been a member of a union, 
Imus, the station that he was working for, others, they would have ran him over like crazy without a second thought, and his family would have been the one that suffered for it. So, no, I'm a big believer in unions precisely for that reason, Eric. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Corey in Florida. Hello, Corey. Hi, Frank. Um, wanted to ask you, what makes an assault rifle an assault rifle different from a regular rifle? Mm-hmm. And if you're against it, against assault rifles, especially law-abiding citizens carrying them. Yeah. Um, so I don't pretend to be an expert in guns. My un- my understanding is that an assault rifle is a selective fire rifle that uses an intermediate cartridge and a detachable magazine. Um, and that it, it, it basically has a rapid-fire, magazine-fed, automatic rifle that was initially designed primarily for military use. And uh, I, I um, you know, have looked at this for years, and again, I'm not an expert. I've never fired an assault weapon. But I supported the assault weapon ban, just like George Bush did, just like John McCain did, just like Bob Dole did. And, uh, and, and I don't know what his status is these days, but Donald Trump used to support a ban on assault weapons. So yes, I I don't think that um you know one of the, I'm all for the second amendment, but you also usually can't go even with the second amendment intact. The Supreme Court has interpreted it that you can't go to the store and purchase a machine gun. So that you can't go and purchase a nuclear weapon. The second amendment doesn't give you the right to purchase a nuclear weapon. And so question is is an assault wife, uh, assault weapon or an assault rifle something that civilians should be able to purchase? Uh, certainly in states like New York, my answer is no. But, um, you know, I'm all for, uh, you know, having a debate about this. I'm all for giving voters more power to make decisions about this kind of thing. And uh, But, yes, I would be voting in New York that uh, there should not be a... Uh, you, you should not be, as a civilian, be able to purchase an assault rifle, particularly if you're young, under the age of 21, particularly if you're mentally ill or, or uh, have a criminal conviction. 800-848-9222. Michael in my bedroom. Hello, Michael. Uh, is Rachel asleep? Is Carmine asleep? A <laughs> um, double, double White House question. Mm-hmm. Was there any president who got married in the White House? And was there any presidential child who got divorced while he was serving in the uh, White House? So I believe there were two presidents that got married in the White House. Woodrow Wilson, who had been a widower, he got married in the White House. And I believe uh, that um, that uh, Grover Cleveland uh, married uh, Francis Folsom in the White House as well. I can't speak to whether or not there was a presidential child that got divorced in the White House. I don't know that, but I'm happy to look that up. 800-848-9222. Dave is in the Bronx. Hello, Dave. What's your question? Hey, good morning, Frank. I'm going to make this question easier uh, than I initially was going to just by saying, let's set this five years in the past before you got married and had a child. Sure. If you were offered a high-paying radio job in Los Angeles with better hours and more prestige, would you relocate away from your family to take it? 
No, I I love New York. I the only scenario that I have ever said that I would move out of New York is if I was publicly disgraced. And uh, I uh, no, I love New York, and I would like to spend the rest of my days here. And I felt that way my entire life. I can't imagine living anywhere else. I like L.A. and I haven't been there in some time, but I, I like L.A. and uh, I have some uh, friends there and some family there. And a lot of New Yorkers uh, don't like L.A., but I do. Uh, so I would uh, love to visit L.A. if I had the means. I'd love to have a second residence out in California. But no, I would never, unless I was publicly disgraced in New York, I would never consider moving elsewhere, including to the uh, West Coast. 800-848-9222. Tony is in Clifton. Hello, Tony. Hi, Frank. How are you tonight? Great. Thanks for asking. Well, I'm excited to ask you this question because I know you love the topic. So I hope I can be a little creative with it. Got it. Um, if you were to write a beginner's guide to time travel, mm. um, and in order for you to do that, you would need to to make a trip. Tell us, um, first of all, what date and time you would leave from where then your next where how would you get there what would be the method because you know from what we've learned is everyone has their different ways of doing it um well i would love i would love to travel in a a time machine like the one in the in the film um you know back to the future finish first yeah sure, sure and then so the other thing is i want you to think about if this is a trip, what's the purpose of it? In other words, you know, what kind of a trip is it? Is is it just a learning trip or is is it is it what's the purpose of your trip? If you if you only had one chance to do it and you're writing a guide and you're saying, Here's where I'm going and this is what I wanna do, this is what I want to accomplish, what would be the purpose of it? And then what would you do? If you're looking at a place geographically, what would you do if you couldn't make it back? Um, so, you know, put a little sort of a summary on if you don't come back. It's just a beginner's guide. You're taking your first trip. You're our example. Mm. You know, if you could say, I did it. I took my first time travel trip. Here's how it went. Um, time period, where are you going? And then would you come back, if you had the choice to come back, would you come back to the present or would you, you know, what's the time period? Okay. You write it for us. Yeah. All good questions, Tony. So um, I would absolutely come back, irrespective of what uh, time period I would uh, be visiting. I would be visiting uh, and trying to alter the timeline as little as possible. So the first stop that I would make would be to um, the the era of um, revolutionary America. I would love to see um, the debates that were going on around the time of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. I'd love to see what kind of men the founding fathers were and how they interacted with one another, how they interacted with their families, how they yeah. reasoned and how they rationalized things. If I got to make multiple trips, I would love to um, 
going back back in my own family timeline and uh, just observe some of the people that I never got to meet. Uh, my uh, grandfather, for instance, my uh, paternal grandfather, never got to meet him. My great-grandfather uh, on my uh, dad's side never got to meet him. I'd just be so curious what they were like. I'd love to observe them. Uh, I would also really be interested in uh, visiting the future. I'd love to see what year we finally do get those flying cars, right? So I'd love to see 50 years from <laughs> yeah. now, not only what technology is like, but what radio yeah. is like, if radio still exists, if uh, what what becomes of, uh, of of me and my family and my son. So I, th- my awesome. first trip would be to the revolutionary America. Awesome. And, you know, that sounds like a great guide. And, you would, you know, if you would document it, maybe some of your listeners will go and try it out, too. <laughs> hey, hey, that would be a lot of fun, Tony. Tony, maybe if I uh, ever get the opportunity to write a novel, maybe that's what this will be. That, that'll be about. Thank you. Maybe I'll, I'll give you a, a, a shout out on the dedication page. Although, from what I understand, reading books takes time, let alone writing books. So I can't even find the time to read a book. 800-848-9222. Jack is in Connecticut. Hello, Jack. Morning, Reverend. Morning. I got a question. Outside of getting to your car and sharing your wife's car, what's the dumbest thing you've done in your marriage? Dumbest thing I've done in my marriage? Well, you know, it's almost always, uh, it's whatever's going to make my wife upset, right? So it's almost always uh, not having my phone charged and staying out late when she's trying to reach me and then needing to have an argument about that you know, the next day, you know, that's always the dumbest thing. And that's happened maybe a half dozen times. Um, what up? Can I ask you? Yeah, sure. Sorry. Go ahead. I want to ask you one more thing. When sure. you're done. Yeah, go ahead. No. So oh. it's that. But yeah, go ahead. How, what, what would it take to get rid of that beat me up thing that you do after your statement, after your, you know, you talk at the end of your very simple jack and jack i'm just going to disconnect you because your phone's a little teetering very simple one thing right one thing and it will be gone tomorrow one word from john katsimatidis the owner of this radio station john katsimatidis says you know maybe get rid of that it's gone it's gone that's it but um i think it's a nice tribute to both uh star trek and kind of the cosmic nature of this show and how star trek encouraged people to dream and uh the the audio that we played there as i said when we when we started using that is from jim trafficant who was my favorite member of congress somebody that i had the opportunity to interview and somebody who i wish there were more elected officials like and if i uh can take issue with tim ryan for one thing it's beating Jim Trafficant in 2002. I love Jim Trafficant. So by doing that, I think it's our little tribute to both Jim Trafficant because with those one-minute speeches that he would do on the floor of Congress, always ending with the words, beam me up, that to me is the model for great short-form commentary. And that's what I'm trying to do. When, when I do those local commentaries that you hear. So, um, and, and I also think it's an appropriate tribute to Star Trek, which has caused so many people to fantasize and wonder about space and science and science fiction. But the answer to your question, Jack, what, what it would take to get rid of it? One word from John Katsimatidis. That's it. John says, you know, eh, I don't know if I like that. Then it's gone. 800-848-9222. Uh, that's 1-800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Chris in the Catskills. Hello, Chris. 
Hey, good morning, Frank. AOC and a number of uh, socialist, militant, progressive Democrats are calling for Jay Jacobs, the head of the New York Democratic Party, to resign after it appears that the four House seats in New York that flipped from Democrat to Republican will account for the new margin of majority that the Republicans will have. And they're blaming Jacobs for a ballot referendum that did not pass that would have allowed uh, for independent redistricting committee that was equally made up of Democrat and Republicans. If they couldn't come to newly drawn district lines after the recent census. Hey, hey uh, Chris, simple- uh, you know, we only have about 20 seconds, so I'm not going to answer that. But that is the subject of my commentary at 4 a.m. Uh, Matt Blaze, Kenneth and Christian, do you have a consensus as to who you pick for the best question? Tony and Clifton. Time Tony travel. and Clifton, time travel. Call back. We'll give you a prize. Until then, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. can be a joy. You know, uh, my parents are divorced, but um, one of the things that they certainly agree upon is uh, the fact that they really love uh, being a grandparent. And uh, my stepmother, who views my son the, uh, the just as if she he was a biological um, grandchild, he she feels the same way, and so does my mother-in-law. They all really love being a grandparent. But there is a study that shows that being a grandparent can be tough. And that being a grandparent is, according to this new data, which we're going to get into in a minute, very, very challenging. Now, it is Veterans Day, at least on the East Coast, And we're going to be covering that in a big way. Going to be talking to Joy Damiani a little bit later this hour. Joy Damiani is um, an interesting, interesting person. She served in the United States uh, Army, and she's a musician, a podcaster, and a writer. She's written about her experiences in the military and about uh, foreign policy in general. I'm very much looking forward to talking with her. Now, is being a grandparent good for you? Now, I look at if you were asked me this three months ago or a month ago, I would tell you 100 percent, absolutely unequivocally. I see the way that my mom gets excited when she sees my son. I see the way that my mother-in-law, my stepmother, my dad, who's not really an excitable guy. You know, I see the way they all get excited when they spend time with their grandchild. I would have said 100 percent. Yes. And yet there is a new study out where. It appears that that might not be the case. 
And this has been something that uh, media has always talked about, how excited parents are, especially older parents are, to become grandparents. According to the U.S. Census, about a quarter of children under the age of five get handed over to the grandparents, at least part-time. In the U.K., astonishingly, about 40% of grandparents look after their grandchildren regularly. In the overwhelming majority of cases, it's at least once a week. Parents, in these cases, may assuage their consciences by insisting that the experience is good for the grandparents. And there are some studies which find, or at least claim to find, that grandparents who look after their grandchildren are healthier, happier, and physically more fit as a result. Well, not according to this new report by Peter Eibach and Jean-Wah Zai of Germany's Max Planck Institute for Demographic Research. This is a real study, and they have found that um, that's not true. Essentially, they have found that um, the studies that um, found that being a grandparent is healthier is not accurate. They have studied nearly 20 years of data from more than 20,000 older Americans. And they conclude that looking after the grandchildren does not benefit the grandparents. On the contrary, there's some possibility, and I'm hoping my mom is not listening right now because she does look after Carmine quite a bit, and and she does listen to the show quite a bit, so I'm hoping she's not listening. But uh, there's some possibility, according to this report, that it does harm. Quote, our results indicate that the effects of grandparenting on health are not significant and in some instances are negative. The previous findings would show the positive impact of being a grandparent. They point out that they're skewed by an obvious problem, which is selection bias. Grandparents who are fit physically and mentally are most likely to be asked to act as babysitters, right? That doesn't mean that looking after the grandchildren makes them more fit. You might just as well argue that being asked to play for the Boston Celtics, say, for instance, makes you taller. So according to these research, uh, these researchers, they tried to control for this effect by introducing other factors, such as the number of children and their gender, which also have strong correlation with whether or not you're likely to end up looking after grandkids. All other things being equal, listen to this, all other things being equal, parents of daughters are more likely to become grandparents early than parents of sons. And they're more likely to be actively involved in raising their grandchildren. After accounting for these controls, they find, these researchers, the supposed positive health benefits of looking after their grandchildren vanish. Naturally, as the researchers admit, there are limitations to these conclusions. A previous, a previous study in Europe, for instance, found that looking after the grandkids was stressful for grandparents. The health effects, if any, were negative. But another one, a decade ago in Taiwan, found the opposite. The grandparents seemed to benefit. And according to the authors of this European study, two economists, we find that child care increases depression. They added that the estimated effect is sizable. Ten additional hours of child care per month 
increases the probability that grandmothers and grandfathers develop depressive symptoms by 3.2 to 3.3 percentage points and by 5.1, excuse me, 5.4 to 6.1 percentage points respectively. Among the ways that this could happen, time spent looking after the grandchildren can take away from privacy. It can also take away from the leisure time that a lot of grandparents enjoy. It can isolate them from people their own age, and it can be both stressful and physically draining. There again, another issue may be how the elderly are treated more generally. It's possible the grandparents get a benefit if they're included more broadly as an extended family, but maybe they don't enjoy being at arm's length until they're wanted for free labor. So I'm curious what you think of this. I'm curious if you're a grandparent or even just a parent and you've called your own parents into service, what you think of this study, what you think of these results, which essentially shows that if you're a grandparent, it leads to you having symptoms of depression. I'm curious if you find this true, not true, and why. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. That's 800-848-9222. I was incredibly surprised by this. I found this to be completely at odds with what I had seen. And the fact that, uh, and what I would have assumed. But sure enough, this is a reputable study. This is not uh, some, you know, some website that relies on self-reporting. This is over 20,000 people. And I'm curious if you find these results to be true or not true. Uh, One option that they say can maybe obviate this to some extent is to leave some or all of the, the estate to children who need it more. That can ease their conscience, meaning the grandparents, by reflecting that they have, after all, spent their golden years giving their own children lots of free labors, labor instead. So uh, I'd be curious if you found this to be true or not. The fellow that wrote this is uh, Brett Ahrens, who's been a guest on this show several times. And I may invite him on to uh, talk about this. But to me, this was the most interesting story that I sent, uh, that I read this week. I sent this to my parents and step-parents. At, to, I was curious as to what they would say. None of them responded, which is great because they seem just as eager and just as enthusiastic about looking after Carmine as ever. But uh, I did feel bad for them because I do rely upon them to look after Carmine quite frequently. So I'm curious if you find the results of this study to be true, not true, partially true. 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Let me, uh, t- uh, and if you want to comment on anything else we've covered, you're welcome to do so. 800-848-9222. We're to talk with Joy Damiani coming up in uh, about 10 minutes. Let me say hello to Billy in the East Village. Hello, Billy. Hi. I'm, I hope I'm not off topic because I, I was I was going to ask you anything. Um it's about the, the the viruses. I say plural viruses because uh, they only talk about the uh, COVID nineteen virus, but we we have the corona, 
We have the monkeypox. We have the old, good old flu hanging around. Now, what my question is, um, does the body get inundated with multiviruses? And in the body, the, the viruses battle each other out to uh, try to uh, establish territory in your bloodstreams and whatever. That's that's the question. Yeah, uh, is, is, I, I'll be honest, Billy. I feel like that's probably a question better suited for a doctor or a medical professional. I really don't know. I couldn't say. I think, um, you know, I have no idea. I'd just be guessing, quite honestly. So I, I, I hate to kind of... Uh, punt on a question so important, but I don't want to give you any sort of misinformation. That's not something I know anything about, honestly. My brother, who's a PhD and a um, biochemist, he he knows about all that kind of thing, and uh, I'm happy to refer that question to him. 800-848-9222. George is in Orange, New York. Hello, George. Hey, how you doing? Thank you for taking my call. I, I, I wanted to talk about that study about the grandparents. Sure, yeah. What do you think? Yeah, um, you know what you were, you were talking about that study, and, and it kind of hit home for me. Um, I really hope my uh, my family does isn't listening to this station <laughs> right now, because um, you know I have have my have my kids, and I have my wife, and we take care of. Uh, hey, uh, George, I'm going to put you on hold because you're you're breaking up a little bit, but it sounds like you're uh, poised to say something important. Try and get to a better area. I'm going to put you on hold. Don't hang up, and we'll go back to you in a minute. Try and get to a clearer area. John is in Freehold. Hello, John. Hey, Frank. Um, so about that, uh, the grandparents study, I actually had uh, two customers today at work that uh, were retired, and they told me that their kids and their grandkids don't understand that once they retired, they don't even want to answer their phone. They want to be left alone. So I could see how having to watch the kids would make them depressed. I feel like once people are a little, um, you know, once they're at that retiree age, they, they just, you know, they, they don't want to watch kids anymore. They're past that. They just want to live their life and relax finally. You know, it's funny. I had um, a, a boss and he basically would say the same thing. And I was so surprised when he said it. He was, and this is a big shot. He's still in radio. He was the president of a radio station. And um, he was talking about, like, he was in the middle of a meeting with me and he got a call from his daughter, stepped outside of the room. Uh, took the call, and I could tell the call was kind of heated, and he came came back into the room, and he said to me, my daughter essentially asked me to uh, come with them on this, this trip. I think it was a family vacation of some sort. This is about five years ago. And he said, no, absolutely not. I'm not going to be watching the kids uh, while you're going off and doing whatever. And I was so surprised at his response because my grandmother – I think would have had the exact opposite response. She would have, and or my grandfather, and they would have uh, welcomed the opportunity to spend time with me. But essentially, the things that he said to me were the very same things that you're saying, and the very same things that are um, in this study, which is that no, they're not babysitters. They're not meant to be free labor. They have their own lives, and they don't want to be tasked with, um, you know, being looking after some rugrats, no matter how much they love them. Yeah, that's the weird thing because, you know, like I said, those were customers of mine that said that. But I know my mother, she would definitely 100% love to see her grandkids whenever. So uh, it's each his own. <laughs> Precisely. Thank you, John. 800-848-9222. Try and reconnect with George in Orange. Hello, George. Hi, can you hear me better? Yeah, I think so. Go ahead. Give it a shot, George. Go for it. Yeah, uh, he kind of, uh, that last caller kind of touched base with it is my, you know, at the end of the day, they love grandkids. They want 
They want to know that the family lineage keeps going, the legacy keeps alive, but it's not their responsibility anymore. And, you know, watching them for a day or two a weekend, but to be, you know, free babysitters, it, it's, it's putting a, a toll on them that wasn't necessary. If you're going to have kids, you've got to take the financial burden of either having someone stay at home to watch them or having the money to be able to have someone help you out. Because to put that on your elderly parents, whatever age they may be, it's just, it is an, un, an unnecessary burden on them. So talk to me, George. What advice would you give to my wife and me who do occasionally turn to our parents to um, look after Carmine? And what advice would you give to my mom who maybe when she's um, stretched to her limit doesn't want to be asked to be looked at, looking after our son when she would prefer to be doing something else? What advice would you give to us where we want our, you know, our parents to be a part of our child's life? And what advice would you give to our parents? Well, I was... George, I'm sorry, I'm losing you, man. Uh, if you want to call back later, you're welcome to. 800-848-9222. Fugazi Tom is in the Bronx. Hello, Fugazi Tom. Hi, how you doing? Okay, with the grandmother stuff, I think it's, because um, I can't see uh, grandparents not enjoying their grandkids, but it is definitely an individual case. I mean, some Mothers and fathers, after they raise their kids, now they're looking forward to this as their leisure now. They don't raise one set. They're not trying to raise another set. And especially if the mother of them is trying to be slick and, you know, put the kids on them while they go out and enjoy their they self all the time. So I, I, it's up to the interview. But, you know, um, and people, I can't see nobody not wanting to do them. But the ones that want to do them, of course, they, you know, their kid, they raise their kids, their kids are grown out, but they love another set of babies, children in the house. So having uh, grandkids, you know, one, two, three years old and watching them, you know, a lot of people love that. You know what I'm saying? Sure. So, uh, you know, up to the individual, man, because, you know, the mothers get slick too and want to put the kids on a grandmother forever, you know, for them to raise. And some parents just think that, you know, after they raise their kids, that's it. This is my leisure time. What are you doing? You're taking away from my leisure time, what I planned for, you know? So um, that's the only way I look at it, individually. It's an individual thing. That that makes sense. That makes sense, Tom. Thank you. Then I look at this study, and I also look at a study um, about loneliness in America. And this is something that really hits home. And uh, my Aunt Camille, who's a widow, Uh, She has talked to me about this very candidly. And, you know, sometimes people will ask me, you know, why do you let this caller or that caller that calls every day natter on for 10 or 15 minutes? And sometimes these are callers that I have fun with and and poke fun at, honestly. But a lot of times the reason is because I, I feel like a lot of these people that call me in the middle of the night, maybe they're lonely. Maybe they don't have anybody else. And uh, maybe that makes for a worse radio show, but... Sorry, I I feel like loneliness is a big problem, and the numbers back that up. More than one in three Americans are lonely, according to a study from Harvard. That rises to 61% when when looking at younger people, younger people, and 51% among mothers with young children. So if you think about that, it's not just a feeling. Loneliness has real consequences for your health, And can shorten your life. One analysis likens the negative health effects of loneliness, listen to this, to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. 
the pandemic highlighted this and made it a lot worse. It hit older adults who had to isolate themselves to protect their health. It hit children who stayed home from school. And it hit young professionals who had to move back home with their parents. But even the most connected people with seemingly robust social lives and networks can be quite lonely. And, you know, my wife and I were talking about this the other day, just on uh, Saturday, about a, uh, a fellow that I know. Not well, but, you know, I like this fella. And um, she, she had never met this fella, and uh, I was poised to introduce them. And she said, oh, is he married? Does he have a significant other? And I said, no, he really wants one. He's very lonely. He's talked to me about this, and this is someone that's very um, paranoid about COVID and things like that. So he's not exactly trolling single bars. And my wife goes on a, a whole commentary, a whole dissertation about how bad loneliness is for you. And she said, that's one of my great fears. If um, I outlive you, I don't know what I'd do if Carmine's out of the house. I don't want to be a burden on him. I would definitely try and get a roommate, maybe a friend or something, or live with one of my siblings. But um, loneliness is a real problem. And I view grandchildren in some respects as a way of helping deal with that loneliness. And I try to, um, you know, again, I'm very lucky that my, my Aunt Camille, I don't want to say her age, but she's up there, okay? She's not in the triple digits, but she's rapidly approaching the triple digits. If you ever want to see my Aunt Camille, um, you you can't get a sense of her age, but I, I uploaded a video on YouTube. Um, just search my YouTube page, Morano Vision, and uh, we have her video of making egg salad on there. You can't really tell her age because she's looked the same for 30 years. She hasn't changed in 30 years, honestly. But um, the... I live right around the corner from her, so I try to go over there as often as I can. Probably not as often as as she'd like. I don't call as often as she'd like. I probably don't call my mom as often as she'd like. But I, the one of the reasons that I'm so eager to get over there with Carmine, and her husband was named Carmine in part. That's who um, I named my son for. And uh, she's incredibly lonely, and it means a lot for her to have Carmine visit, even though he's not exactly speaking with her. He's only 11 months old. He's just crawling around, making some sound. But she really gets a kick out of when he visits. So I always assumed that grandparents were like that, that grandparents just valued the opportunity to spend time with their grandchildren. And I thought that grandparenting was a good way of dealing with this data on loneliness. But this study... The one from these researchers suggests something else entirely. And I have to tell you, it's something that I never would have guessed. So I'm curious if you've been a grandparent, what you've found. Do you find that looking after your grandchildren leads to more depression, essentially? 800-848-9222. Joy Damiani is here. We're going to talk to her in a minute. Paul is in Nutley, New Jersey. Paul, uh, you ever go to the Barrow House in Nutley, New Jersey? Yes, absolutely. Have I, you been there? I have. I love it. I wish. Uh, yeah, I wish too. I got. I got there more often. It's a great place, and the food is terrific. Yeah, not you know, Nutley's hometown, USA, which you know. Yes, yeah. If you ever see the owners of that place, Tommy and Dean, I doubt they'll remember me, but tell them I said hi, and I want to come All back. All right, soon. I will. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say on the grandparent issue, um, I've been a financial advisor, financial estate planner for a lot of years. And um, I just wanted to comment on, you know, um, parents, you know, including somebody in your situation, 
you have to put, put some thought and put it on paper of who would be um, Carmine's um, guardian if something were to happen to the two of you. And sometimes, you know, the grandparent might be up to the, you know, the challenge in the short term, sometimes not. And the other point I wanted to make is that, you know, um, when grandparents do their will, they should be careful not to leave a grandchild uh, who's a minor money outright because, you know, minors can't inherit money. So it would be a hassle for the parents, you know, to go to court and, and kind of manage that money, um, you know, until the, the kid is 18. And then once the kid's 18, not every 18-year-old is, you know, responsible enough to, uh, to you know, do the right thing with an inheritance. Uh, it's certainly good advice, Paul. Thank you. You know, when I was a teenager, my uh, my grandfather didn't have much in the way of money or property. He left me his uh, condo in West Palm Beach. I think that was really all he had. And um, we sold that. I don't remember what we made. Not a lot of money, but uh, $25,000, $30,000. I don't remember. But um, that was integral in terms of paying for my, uh, my schooling at uh, New York University. And that was a big... Big help, and uh, it did create a lot of tension between my mother and her brother, uh, my uncle. And uh, I don't think my uncle appreciated the fact that um, that he essentially didn't get any money uh, from his dad. So you're right. That's certainly the kind of thing that I think few people think about until it's too late. Uh, we're going to take one more call here, and then we will chat with Joy Damiani, which I'm very, very much looking forward to. Regina is in New Jersey. Hello, Regina. Oh, hello. I am calling about the grandchildren. I babysat my three grandchildren, took care of them every day, traveled to their home to take care of them. I enjoyed it immensely. They're all in college now, and I um, I feel that I am so much better because I did all that for them. And they enjoyed it. They appreciate it. And they, uh, the grandchildren have a uh, great feeling for me now. They call and come up and visit me. And we talk about the days that I babysat for them. Well, that's and- wonderful, Regina. I hope my, uh, my parents are able to say the same thing as what you just did. You made my day with this call. So I'm so pleased to hear that. And I'm glad to hear you're doing well and your grandchildren are doing well. Thank you. Joy Damiani joins me next. We'll talk about some of the lessons she learned in the Army. She was an Army journalist. We'll talk to her about her unique experience in the Army and what she's been doing since then. She's hosting a podcast. She's making music. She's doing a lot of writing. She's an interesting person. We'll talk to her straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Your girdle left me in a way that would let me respect. Was too much to ask. Could have had a conversation instead of trashing the relationship, but that was just too massive a task. I might not have been all sunshine and flowers, but a line for all your lies would make the song last for an hour if you left me with a little respect. Then I might have a little left for you. Fool. Could have had a friend 
the musical stylings of Joy Damiani. You ever have someone that you've never met, that you've never spoken to, but as soon as you read about them, as soon as you heard their voice, you knew you were going to be friends with them, and you knew that you could be friends with them if uh, things had gone in a different direction. If for me, Joy Damiani is one such person. She is a fascinating person, a writer, a podcaster, a musician, someone who was recruited as a teenager into the U.S. Army out of Syracuse months after September 11th and has had a fascinating journey, not only in the military, but certainly since leaving uh, since leaving the military. And it strikes me on Veterans Day that she's as uh, as good of a person to speak to as anyone. Uh, Joy, it is so great to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thanks so much for having me, Frank. So, uh, Joy, tell folks a little bit uh, before we talk about your writing, your podcast, your music, and what you've been doing um, recently. Tell folks about your time in the military. How'd you end up in the Army? What'd you do in the Army? Well, I ended up in the Army kind of as a best option for me, as I thought. I was recruited out of community college and Onondaga Community College for any of your listeners who have spent any time upstate. Um, and it's it's a heavily recruited from college. And um, I was called by a recruiter and he said, what are you studying? And I said, well, I would like to study journalism. And he said, well, I can get you a journalist job in the Army. And I was 19 and fresh out of reform school. And I thought, you know, this way I could actually be paid for being repressed (laughs) because I was dealing with a lot of that from my family. And um, it led me on a a whole adventure, (laughs) I got to (laughs) say. So what did you do? What was your role once you were in the military? I was in public affairs, which is not journalism, Um, (laughs) as anyone who has lived a little bit of life knows. um, But the Army calls journalism and public affairs the same job. So my job was essentially propaganda, but like internal propaganda. It was my job was to write articles and, um, you know, create news public news like publications that were essentially cheering on the military and um, telling my fellow soldiers what a good job we were doing, even though we were not. Uh, I, I would say, actually, I would say individual soldiers were probably doing the best any of us could uh, with the situation, but the military, uh, we were definitely not winning. <laughs> uh, obviously, in the aftermath of September 11th, uh, there were a couple of major wars that the army was involved in, namely Afghanistan and Iraq. What was your role in either of those two conflicts, if any? Well, when I first joined, it was shortly after 9-11, and Iraq was not even in the public consciousness. And it was actually when I was in training for Army Public Affairs um, as, you know, an enlisted Army Public Affairs Specialist, so basically, like, nobody of any influence, um, is when the ramp-up started happening to the Iraq War. I was reading, you know, some of the news, but also The Onion, because I was always uh, more interested in the, the lighter side of darkness. <laughs> and um, and I was, you know, reading all of these hot takes on Iraq and then reading The Onion's take. 
<laughs> and um, and I and then and then I found out I was being sent to a unit that was going to deploy to Iraq. And I didn't end up going to Iraq until 2005. But when I got there, I realized, um, first of all, we were not the good guys. We were occupying and we were invaders and occupiers of of a nation that um, had no interest in having us as its um, occupying force. And um, so all of the all of the things I had heard about the military as far as like in the past with, you know, I considered the old wars, right? Like World War II, mm. Vietnam, Korea. Um, I thought of Vietnam as like the bad war and I thought we had learned our lesson. And then at the time I got to Iraq, I realized we had not learned our lesson. This was essentially the same thing, um, but with um, a smarter PR team that I got to be part of. <laughs> well, what, what part are the of my things... job was, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, please. Well, part of my job was also to train soldiers on how to speak to the media. Um, and so the U.S. Army, by the time I got in, had learned its lesson from Vietnam. Like, you can't just give journalists access to the war and to the soldiers. Um, you have to embed them and make sure that the people who talk to them are only the people who have been trained to talk to them and trained to say the right things. So it was part of my job to train soldiers to say the right things and to keep the media away from soldiers who had not been trained to speak to them about our messaging. You know, it's funny. One of the things that um, people that want to praise veterans, and I and I try to praise veterans as much as anybody, uh, but one of the things that uh, I n- never say even though I value the experience of veterans and I appreciate the fact that uh, folks have been willing to voluntarily put their, you know, their lives on the line. One of the things that a lot of folks say is uh, they, they were fighting for our freedom. Now you served in Iraq and a lot of other people served in Iraq and Afghanistan, but our freedom really wasn't at stake in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I've never really said that uh, because I didn't feel like if we weren't in Iraq or Afghanistan, that our freedom was any more at risk than it was if we were there. So, uh, I mean, is that, am I off base at all? You're not off base at all. In fact, I would say that no U.S. war has been for our freedom. I mean, other than the original, you know, overtaking and genociding of the uh, Native Americans who would have been like, hey, you can live here, too. Um, But, you know, but even that wasn't for, quote unquote, our freedom. We would have been free to live here as long as we were not genociding anybody. So um, the way I see it is no war that the U.S. has begun is for anyone's freedom except for the military industrial complex's freedom to continue. That was what I saw in, in Iraq was, you know, we're here to be here. We're not here for anyone but us. <laughs> so Unfortunately, you wrote a book um, about uh, the lessons that you learned in the army. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the lessons that you learned in the <laughs> army? Uh, I mean, one of the major lessons I learned is that the army is, you know, is not a place where you go to defend anyone's freedom. Like we were just saying, it's um, the army is what I I call it the largest terrorist organization in in the world. And also, you know, ironically, the largest socialist 
holistic organization in, in the nation um, because of the way it's set up. But really, the U.S. Army as it is right now, I mean, it's it's essentially it's it's fueling the ability to stay at war. Um, the U.S. Army's job is to stay at war and to stay, um, you know, getting those billions and billions of tax dollars that should be going to healthcare and education um, and, and um, you know, all the things that people join the military for. You know, if, if I had been able to go to school um, on my tax dollars, I wouldn't have had to join the military, for example. <laughs> One of the things I like to do on Veterans Day is one of the things that I think you do regularly, which is uh, when we talk about veterans that have um, uh, sacrificed for the country, whether they've been injured, whether they've just given their time, whether, unfortunately, they you know, might have ultimately been killed, is really get Americans to think about where we should be committing American military service members. Mm. What do you think sort of the um, the litmus test should be in terms of whether or not the military is committed to a certain place? Because you, you, you listen to some public officials, they are ready to send the military to any country that uh, has even a vague, vague connection to the United States at all. And then you listen to other folks and they think essentially the military should never be sent anywhere. As somebody that's, um, you know, that's been in the Army, what, what do you think a, a barometer of military intervention should be? I mean, my personal opinion is that the the military should be abolished and that the money that it goes to it should be used to take care of people here in the U.S. and everywhere because there's plenty of that money. We shouldn't intervene anywhere. Um, Everywhere that we've intervened has been for our um, billionaires' benefits. You know, I, I... when people thank me for my service, I say, like, I served Dick Cheney. I, I didn't serve you. I didn't do any service for you. The military doesn't do service for the American people or for any people. Um, that's the big lie. That's the big propaganda. And um, the military has invested billions and billions of dollars into people believing that that we fought for freedom when we didn't fight for freedom. You know, we we were suckered into being owned by the government so that it could make us, you know, it's bitches, you know, I'm sorry. I'm not, if I'm not able to say, I forget sometimes, but I don't know what words we can say on the radio anymore, but, but I, we in the military, the military right now, as it is, it is, you know, it occupies every nation uh, that exists on earth. If any nation um, had a base in the U.S., we would be at war with it, right? <laughs> but, you know, we we in the military are being used. We're being exploited, just like every other worker in the United States. Um, and I think that's a thing that people don't – people – our government encourages civilians to thank us because what it does is it keeps them from asking why, why we had to do that. Um, we nobody should have to be in the military. Um, nobody should think that the military is a uh, honorable path. It's not. It it it's a path that we take when we are either desperate 
uh, and have no other alternative, or when we've been deceived into thinking that we're doing a service to our fellow beings, which we're not. So you said quite a bit there. I want to try and follow up as, yeah. <laughs> on as many different things as I can in the amount of time that we have. Uh, for starters, I mean, it seems like the, the whole notion of the United States military, you view uh, negatively and uh, the things that they do as negatively. Is that a little unfair in that if um, the United States as a country is attacked or invaded e- either by a, another country or by uh, some sort of rogue terrorist group, that the very first people to have to deal with that sort of aggression towards the United States or its citizens would be the United States military? Is, is, it, un- is it unfair to call that group the first group that would be rushing to risk their lives for other Americans? Uh, is it unfair to call them terrorists? I mean, well, when you think about it, the United States has never been invaded other than the original invasion that genocided the indigenous people who lived here. We were the original invaders, right? The U.S. has never been invaded. Um, Well, I mean, the War of 1812. Right. Right. I mean, but it's not like since since the U.S. has been an established um, entity, let's say, okay, even for the last 150 years, the United States has not been invaded or even attacked by uh, a national military from anywhere. What about Pearl Harbor? Harbor, right, Right. You look at Pearl Harbor, right, and that was, I mean— there's a lot of reading that we need to do about Pearl Harbor and who actually instigated that and what, who actually knew about that. And when you look at all of the attacks that have happened on American soil, like we have the technology, we have been able to see those coming and prevent them. And we've also, in a sense, instigated them by antagonizing other nations. So if we, uh, as the United States were to stop antagonizing other nations, um, we would no longer uh, be worrying about a threat. And um, the fact is that most people in the military right now who could be doing some kind of defense, like the National Guard, for example, if we were to just have a National Guard that were to be on call for any potential invasion, that would be fine. Um, We don't need to have deployment. We don't need to have a presence in other nations. We don't need to invade and occupy and intervene in other nations in order to have a secure nation if that's what we want. The best way to have security is to take care of the people who live here and to keep people strong and healthy and educated, whereas we don't have that right now. No no argument uh, from me, and I I think that's... um... In some respects, and I know you may bristle at the comparison, I think that's one of the things that uh, a lot of folks found attractive about the messaging of Donald Trump in 2016 Mm -hmm. is especially in the primaries. He was talking about uh, ending American participation in these never ending wars and using some of those resources uh, for, you know, projects here at home. Now, in his presidency, it didn't exactly work out that way. But I think that was one of the things that uh, that uh, that he said that made him attractive to people that weren't necessarily Republicans. Now, no question when it comes to, um, you know, giving something like four hundred million dollars worth of uh, military aid to a country like Ukraine, I think. You're, you're, you're certainly right. It's very difficult to argue with anything that you said. But 
Um, one of the things that I think some people may wrestle with is what if you see a, an oppressive regime like Nazi Germany or something even a little bit more modern engaged oh. in something like the Holocaust, something like ethnic cleansing or something like a concerted oh. genocide of Jews or others? Oh. Um, does the United States have any sort of a role in intervening to stop that? Well, I mean, if you look at the history of the Nazi Germany, um, you know, Hitler took his inspiration from concentration camps essentially in the U.S. I mean, the U.S. was the original Nazi Germany. We are we are superior at genocide in this nation. We wiped out Native Americans. We wiped out um you know, we, we put Japanese people in concentration camps, you know. The Nazi Germany was Well, we didn't do that until after and, and, World War Two. And well, the Native American genocide right. has but been the, going on for centuries. Mm-hmm. And and when you look at who brought the Nazis home, who gave the Nazis um sanctuary, it was the US. You know, we we brought them in. What Donald Trump's family you know, they were Nazis, essentially, in essence, and um, and we have we have nurtured that mentality, that xenophobia. We we've just transferred it to Arabs and to Mexicans, and uh, so we are essentially, you know, the Fourth Reich when it comes to it. And we 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 were before them, and we're after them. We are. Um, holocausting and you know all of when you talk about the way that the U.S. has carried out genocide of uh, African Americans you know for slaves and um, indigenous but, people like but, we're pros but but um, I, I'm not you know defending obviously slavery or what happened to indigenous people or anything but uh, let's uh, you know obviously the the people that run things either the voters or the levers of government in 2022 they they can't be responsible for the things that were done in 1860 or 1760 or you know anything before they were alive so the the american military exists as it is now right so um mm-hmm. should should the when the united states military is called upon to and ethnic cleansing in a place like uh, Rwanda, for instance, isn't that a little bit uh, rather than rather than addressing the question of should the United States military intervene in a place like Rwanda or the Sudan, isn't it a little bit of a, you know a cop out to say well the United States has a history of mistreating people and ethnic cleansing and its own Holocaust uh, a, a long time ago. Isn't it unfair to use that as an excuse to intervene or not intervene in 2022? Well, not at all, because we're still doing that. I mean, we've been bombing Yemen for, mm. you know, for all these years as well. Like We've been I mean, when you look at who did 9-11, right, like it's it's understood that Saudi Arabians were right. the ones who were primarily behind 9-11. Right. So, you know, as as an upstate New Yorker, you know, my aunt worked in one of the towers um, adjacent uh, to one of the ones that was brought down. And um, so I'm deeply invested, you know, like I, I have been thinking a lot about this for many years. And when I realized that we are Saudi Arabia's strongest ally. Yeah, it's disgusting. I say, Right. Like we're we are we are the hypocrites of the world. You know, we say that we are trying to end, um, you know, 
genocide and end holocausting all over the place. But I mean, I mean, look at Palestine, for example. Like we're we are Israel and Saudi Arabia's biggest allies, and they are responsible for so much death and so much oppression in the Middle East. And um, and we we're their biggest fans, and we support them. We give them so many tax dollars. Joy, I um, I'm going to end with this question, and then hopefully you can come back and we can continue the discussion. Uh, but mm-hmm. um, the United States military and even the the military industrial complex and the whole United States foreign policy apparatus, you know, I, I give the United States and the United States military by extension credit for helping free people from from Nazism and from communism and from other autocratic regimes, even if we're not exactly uh, free of sin and have clean hands when it comes to their conduct in Yemen and our dealings with countries like Saudi Arabia. Can you give the United States credit for, you know, giving freedom to people that were informally occupied Eastern Germany, for instance, or Albania? No, I mean, I would give that credit to the Russians. They were the ones who beat the Nazis. We have perpetuated oppression everywhere in the world. I mean, we have been the biggest oppressors. We are the ones in in the United States. We don't have even freedom of, you know, we don't have the freedom to be educated with um, without indoctrination, state indoctrination, we don't have the freedom to have health care. We don't have the freedom to question our our quote unquote democracy, which we don't even have because mm. the electoral college is not is not does not create a democracy. And we in the United States are um, we are victims of a propaganda machine that learned very, very well from the Nazis that, you know, you can't just overtly genocide people. You have to make it in the name of freedom. Joy, we have I, genocided I, I, more people in the world. I have to end it there. I have to end it there. But uh, let, let's continue the conversation soon. Whenever you're up for uh, <laughs> yes. uh, whenever you're up for staying up late, we'll continue the conversation. I'm already getting uh, a whole bunch of people calling and eager to uh, take a shot at you. So uh, uh, we'll, 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 next time next time you're on, we're going to have you mix it up with some of the callers, okay? Fantastic. Uh, well, thank you for having me on and letting me speak. I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, Joy Damiani, uh, she's author of, uh, the, of a book called If You Ain't Cheating, You Ain't Crying, also a musician and a podcaster. You can uh, check out her uh, website at Joy Damiani, D-A-M-I-A-N-I dot com, uh, even if you disagree. You know, I think some of her music is pretty interesting. And I think some of the questions she forces us all to examine about the, what the United States is doing in countries like Yemen and in it being associated with countries like Saudi Arabia, irrespective of how you might uh, view her comments about uh, the United States military, I think these are questions worth exploring. And uh, so that's that. All right, 800-848-9222, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is Justin Timberlake, suit and tie. This is a Matt Blaze selection. What brought this on, Matt Blaze? It's a good tune. It's one of those forgotten Justin Timberlake songs. But So when I put in the requests for the music, and then, you know, our program director met me, and he's kind enough to purchase these songs, how do those songs end up making it into the final rotation of bumper music? Well, I could have played one, but since we're like about to go out, I figured you'd want to talk about one of the songs I that see. you played. Fair enough. In. That's a, a, a see. There you go. Asked and answered. That's some uh, fine rationale there. Hey, uh, coming up, denunciations. You want to comment on anything we've covered thus far? 800-848-9222. That's one 9222 In the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, I see a lot of you queuing up to uh, take a bite out of uh, Joy Damiani. We will uh, get to your calls as soon as we can. Coming up this hour, we have uh, retired Navy Rear Admiral Kyle Kozad. He's the author of the book called Relentless Positivity. He's uh, an interesting guy. He served in a wide variety of uh, leadership positions in the Navy and in the Department of Defense, including as the uh, senior director in the White House Situation Room. And um, he has had some difficult uh, experiences in his life. And uh, now these days he's the CEO of the Naval Aviation Museum Foundation. He's got a book out in which he tells His story and um, his story involves a lot of grit and a lot of resilience. And uh, we'll get into it with him in about 20 minutes. But if you ever think you have a tough time in this book, he describes how he bounced back from a debilitating spinal cord injury with one overarching motivation to give back and to make a positive difference for others. So we'll get into his um, his work as a two-star na- naval admiral and uh, his work serving in active duty in the military and get into what he's doing now. In the meantime, there are a lot of people that need to be denounced, and that's why this portion of the show is... The Other Side of Midnight presents Denunciations. Ah! Uh- Yes, uh, there are a number of folks that uh, have done something which they probably should not be proud of, right? Uh, And I am forced to begin with, no, not Kenneth. I I denounce him privately. No, I'm forced to begin with a, we don't know this person, but it is a, Mental health counselor at uh, a Volusia County school, a Volusia County. It's in Florida. I'm not sure if that's the proper way to pronounce it. Volusia. Volusia, not Volusia. Volusia. I'll see Matt plays a would-be Floridian. A district mental health counselor at uh, Holy Hill, Holly Hill School in 
Florida, in Holly Hill. We don't know the name of this person, but this mental health counselor is pressing charges against a 10-year-old student for an unwanted touch. Now, Dave from the Bronx alluded to this in 15 Seconds of Fame yesterday. This district mental health counselor is claiming that a student inappropriately touched her during a hug. The student is in fourth grade. The student is in fourth grade and serving a 10-day suspension. Now, who knows? Maybe there's more that meets the eye here. But what is the worst that this fourth grader could have done in the midst of this hug? What Maybe grabbed, grabbed this counselor's butt or something? Um, that's certainly inappropriate. That certainly might be cause for a suspension. But is it really worth pressing charges? And especially if you're a mental health counselor, shouldn't you be in a position where you're trying to further the mental well-being of the students that you're working with? The student's grandmother and legal guardian, Lakeisha Hollins, said the boy who's being suspended didn't do anything wrong and disagrees with the employee's decision to file charges. She also disagreed with the district's decision to pursue expulsion, though the school notified her on Wednesday that there was not enough evidence to expel him. The grandmother said, quote, we're talking about a 10-year-old being kicked out of school for what possibly could have been an accident. So they're not naming the student due to his age or the district employee, but in my view, this is crazy. In a suspension letter sent to the grandmother, the school district stated that the counselor was in the student's classroom when the class returned from lunch and the 10-year-old boy approached the counselor to hug her. The counselor turned sideways to give a side hug. The student put his left arm around her shoulder and then his right hand, he reached and grabbed her left breast which she had to grab his wrist and remove his hand. The explanation states that the student proceeded to smirk and walk away. He later began yelling and kicking things and stormed off when his primary teacher asked him about the incident. Now, um, this is, if, if, if this was intentional, it's inappropriate. But should it really merit criminal charges? I don't think so. And I think... Of all the people that should understand that, and, and and again, I don't want to sound like I'm excusing groping. It's not a joke and not something that should be taken lightly unless it's done by Arnold Schwarzenegger. But um, you're dealing with 10-year-olds here. I, I don't think this is something that should involve law enforcement at all. How about a um, talking to with the grandmother? How about that, right? About boundaries. This is... To me, absurd. So whoever this mental health counselor is, I do denounce you. I must also denounce KFC Germany. You know KFC. They used to be known as Kentucky Fried Chicken. They have issued an apology, but it will not save them from a denunciation. After German fried chicken enthusiasts received a notification on their phones from KFC Germany encouraging them to treat themselves on Wednesday as the anniversary of the 1939 Kristallnacht pogrom 
was commemorated. Commemoration of Kristallnacht. Treat yourself to more tender cheese with the crispy chicken. Now at KF Cheese, read the push notification to customers' phones. In a statement uh, issued to the Jerusalem Post on Thursday, the fast food chain apologized for the error, explaining that they use a semi-automated content creation process linked to calendars that include national observances. In this instance, our internal review process was not properly followed, resulting in a non-approved notification being shared. Calling the mistake obviously wrong, insensitive, and unacceptable, KFC Germany added that they have suspended app communications while we examine our current process to ensure such an issue does not occur again. So there you have it. Uh, That's a pretty big deal. Offering a special fried chicken deal to commemorate one of the worst anti-Semitic incidents in history. Pretty big deal. I must uh, denounce um, several fans, and many fans, quite frankly, of the Houston Astros. Uh, I am, you know, I'm proud of the Houston Astros. It's great that they were able to win the World Series. But um, the trash cleanup along the Astros parade route could take three days. Primarily because of the um, the trash cleanup, all these uh, beer bottles and cans and all this trash and litter that the Astros fans who attended the parade were responsible for. Now, I'm all for celebrating, and I recognize that sometimes somebody might drop a piece of paper or even a soda, maybe a beer. But it sounds like this is just, they trashed the, the city, uh, you know, apparently. And uh, I think that is way inappropriate. And uh, it makes all baseball fans, all enthusiastic baseball fans, look bad. So I don't approve of this at all. You know, for years, the Astros fans were known for banging trash cans, right? That's what their thing was. That's what they do. I think maybe they should, next time the Astros have a major celebration, think about using some of those trash trash cans. So uh, that's that. All right. Um, I also must denounce these um, writers at Saturday Night Live that are poised to engage in a boycott over Dave Chappelle hosting the show. Now, to me, this is crazy. New York Post reporting that some staff writers, and this has been denied elsewhere, so who knows if this is right, but if it is happening, I'm denouncing this. Uh, The New York Post reporting that some staff writers are so furious that Dave Chappelle, who's made so-called transphobic and homophobic jokes has been chosen to helm the iconic show that they're sitting out the episode. They're not going to do the show, but none of the actors are boycotting. To me, when I saw that headline, all I could think is what spoiled, entitled brats these people are. Who are you to boycott? You're there to do a job, write jokes. Maybe if you concentrated a little bit more on writing jokes... 
maybe the show would be a little funnier. And you wouldn't need to bring in comedians like Dave Chappelle. You know, I, I'm going to try and watch Saturday Night Live this weekend. Because uh, I think Dave Chappelle, a lot of his humor is on point. But uh, I think this is, uh, this is insane. Do you know at, at WABC in New York, the radio station, you know, that we're on there, almost the entire station lineup is controversial. Can you imagine if somebody at that radio station said, oh, yeah, I'm boycotting. I don't like this person or that person. I'm boycotting. You think they'd have a job the next day? I hope Lorne Michaels and NBC tells this person or whoever's boycotting, whether it's two people or 20, I hope he tells them where to go. I must denounce these Rikers Island correction officers who have been arrested on federal fraud charges stemming from a long-running investigation into sick leave abuse. These, these correction officers are no brain surgeons. They not only um, abused sick leave and took sick leave for, I think, a year when they weren't sick, they even boasted about it on social media, on, on the Internet. They boasted about their use of taxpayer-funded, paid-free time. Here's a quote from Monica Coxum on social media. Yes, at home, still getting paid. Unlimited sick, baby. Get like me. Living my best life. Coxum was out for more than a year claiming a series of injuries, trauma, and illness. Now, it gets better. Her boyfriend, Officer Eduardo Trinidad, posted pictures showing him bowling and installing drywall. Despite claiming that he could not sit, run, or lift anything since going out sick in June of 2021. These two, who, again, as I said, are no brain surgeons, also took trips to Florida, the Dominican Republic, and West Virginia on agency time. There was a third officer arrested, Stephen Kanji, who was producing and marketing his own comic book while out on Department of Correction time, while submitting false doctor's notes for more than a year and a half. Uh, These people are facing up to 10 years in prison. These are three people that I will not be sorry to see go to prison. And uh, who knows? Wouldn't it be the ultimate irony of all ironies if they end up at Rikers? I must announce the state of California, a new study conducted ahead of Veterans Day today, found that California is the worst state in the entire country for military veterans. The research conducted by Lawn Starter compared 200 of America's largest cities on their ability to serve veterans using metrics such as VA facilities, PTSD recovery programs, housing affordability, and employment and educational opportunities. The study used 37 different metrics and found that Providence, Rhode Island, was the best city for veterans. But... Um, California, I do denounce you. I must also denounce some sugar substitutes. A new study shows that popular sugar substitutes, I hate this, this is very frightening to me, worsen your memory. Yes, that's right. Using laboratory models, scientists discovered that ingesting FDA-approved levels of saccharin, ACE-K, and stevia, stevia, Everybody always thinks stevia is healthy. I think stevia is healthy. I throw it in some of the smoothies that I make from time to time. Early in life may result in many changes to the body, including brain areas linked to memory and reward-motivated behavior. 
early life high sugar diets have already been linked to impaired brain function. But now these low calorie sugar substitutes, including stevia, same thing. According to recent research, they could have a negative impact on the developing gut and the brain. That is the word from researchers from the University of Southern California, Dornsife College of Letters, Arts, and Scientists. So, Ace-K, Stevia, Saccharin, I do denounce you. I must also denounce Democratic strategist Kurt Bardella. Now, Kurt Bardella, much like uh, some of the other people we've been talking about, has apologized for this, but he still gets a denunciation. You know, what a jerk this guy is to say something like this. I mean, again, he apologized, and I'm quick to accept everybody's apology, whether it's Glenn Youngkin, whether it's uh, KFC Germany, or whether it's this schlemiel. Um, He was on MSNBC on Joy Reid's program on Wednesday, and Kurt Bardella was asked by Joy Reid about Congresswoman Lauren Boebert. And she he was asked about the close race against Democrat Adam Frisch. Reid asked him what Boebert might do next if she fails to retain her seat. Now, you'd think he would do something like what I do when asked, oh, what's next for Lee Zeldin or this or that? Well, this is what this joker said. He's so funny. I guess it might be a gain for OnlyFans. Now, Joy Reid laughed like a hyena while Bardella went on to attack the MAGA wing of um, the Republican Party. The comment left uh, former Senator Claire McCaskill stunned. After Bardella's comments went viral on Twitter, he was criticized for the crass joke by other progressives, and he offered a tepid apology. He said, quote, I appreciate your feedback, and when someone from your vantage point weighs in, that warrants consideration and reflection. I'll be more thoughtful about my words in the future. It is never my intention to shame women. I apologize, period. You know, clearly it was his intention. Now, Lauren Boebert is uh, a very beautiful woman. I I have friends. I've never met her, but, you know, I've seen her on television. She looks like a model. And I have had friends that are Republican politicians that have been at events with her. And all they can do is talk about certain aspects of her body. I, I have a, a friend who saw her at an event. He was he was ready to pass out at seeing her legs and her buttocks. I mean, not at all. This guy would have left his wife for Lauren Boebert. And I found his description to be just as sexist as what Kurt Bardella did. Here's the difference. What this fella did, and I've heard other fellas do the same thing, in private, was done in private. And what Kurt Bardella did was done on national television. To say the the difference between those two things is enormous. And what, we've talked about this before. Everyone thinks that people that are beautiful, like uh, Kenneth and me, Lauren Boebert, people think that we have it easy, Right. And the fact is, a lot of times people discriminate against us because of how attractive we are. And I think this is a textbook example of that happening. By Kurt Bardella saying that she should, uh, g- uh, this would be a gain for OnlyFans, which if you don't know, is a website where you can essentially subscribe to get private pornography, basically. It's sometimes softcore pornography. It's basically 
demeaning everything she's ever done in her professional life, which I can tell you is substantially more impressive than anything Kurt Bardella has ever done. So, Kurt Bardella, I do denounce you. I must also denounce former NBA player Ben Gordon. Boy, this guy is a real winner, I'll tell you. You might remember him from his time with the Chicago Bulls. He's been arrested for beating up two security guards at the Rock and Roll McDonald's in Chicago on Friday. Chicago police responded to a call of a disturbance at the fast food joint around 328 in the morning. And uh, sure enough, Ben Gordon, 39-year-old man, was being taken out of the restaurant when he punched a 29-year-old male security guard in the face and threw him to the ground. He also pushed a second male security guard to the ground. Both victims refused medical treatment, but Gordon was charged with two counts of misdemeanor battery. Apparently, um, Gordon is no longer in custody, but... uh, you know, we don't know what his deal was in terms of bail. He, This guy has had a long history of being belligerent. In October, he was arrested at LaGuardia Airport after witnesses said he punched his 10-year-old son in the face as they got ready to board a flight to Chicago. Two Port Authority of uh, New York cops and New Jersey police officers were injured during his arrest. In 2017, he was arrested for pulling a fire alarm. In an L.A. apartment building later that year, he was charged with robbery for robbing the manager of a uh, residential complex where he lived. This fella is something. Grew up in Mount Vernon. So those of you listening in Mount Vernon, I hope you're proud. And finally, I must announce the Taliban. Uh, The Taliban are banning women and girls from using gyms. In Afghanistan. Do you remember when the Taliban took over, when the United States left? What did we hear? We heard this was going to be a kinder, gentler Taliban. We heard this was not going to be your your father's Taliban. We heard this was going to be a Taliban that respected women. Well, no. Uh, They are cracking down on women's rights and freedoms like crazy. And the ban on women using gyms is apparently being introduced because people were ignoring gender segregation orders, and apparently women were not wearing the required headscarf or hijab. Women are also banned from parks. The ban on women using gyms and parks came into force this week, according to Mohammed Akef Mahosher. So if you're a woman in Afghanistan, you will not be able to use the gym. You will not be able to use a park. So that's that. All right. Um, that is uh, that. So Taliban, I do denounce you. That slams the lid on denunciations. We're going to talk with uh, Admiral Kyle Kozad in uh, just a moment. Let me take one quick call here. Maybe one or two quick calls before we uh, before we get to Admiral Kozad. Peter is in the Bronx. Hello, Peter. Hey, uh, thanks for taking my call, Frank. Yeah, this girl, uh, she's kind of lost in the fog of woke. Um, I was in Iraq in 2005 and um, uh, it's why I agreed we didn't belong there um, in, in Iraq at that time. I, uh, I, you know, she's clearly been brainwashed to, to believe. I mean, you can't blame the United States for everything. 
you know? Well, and you know what, yeah. Peter, and uh, I tried to make this point, and I am glad that you made it because you've actually worn the uniform of our country. You've certainly got a, a lot more ability to make these comments than I have. Let's say we weren't supposed to be in Iraq. Let's say we weren't supposed to be in Afghanistan. That's not the fault of the military. That's the fault of the politicians that sent them there. Right. Uh, I agree. So, so I, I, agree. I, I think it's unfair to call the um, military Nazis. Uh, but, you know, we'll have oh, her back. Course. We're going to continue the discussion in the future. She, she was she was all over the place, though. She was she was she was saying that the Nazis learned from us. And then she was saying we learned from the Nazis. Yeah, no, uh, no. she was all over the place. And but I agree. But General Shinseki was told told the Bush administration do not go into Iraq with less than five hundred thousand. Right. And they told him he was crazy. He needed to retire, and he retired, and he kept his mouth shut. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but uh, you know, I when I went to Iraq and I was in Kuwait, and they we we went to get all this new equipment. We went over with all the equipment, but they gave us all new equipment. And it was like when we walked in there, you had all these different corporations, and you had like twenty people from each corporation. You know, like guys were measuring your head. Meanwhile, they were giving out a helmet that at one size fits all. You just moved the cushions around. And I just said to somebody at that day, I said, nothing good is going to come out of this, and nothing ever di- good ever did. Yeah, I think you were exactly right there, uh, Peter. Hey, Peter, thank you for your service, and um, and uh, happy Veterans Day. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Hey, Admiral Kozad is going to join us next. He's got a a fascinating new book out. Uh, We'll talk to him about his service in the military. We'll talk to him about what he's doing now and uh, some important life lessons in terms of how to overcome adversity and how to battle the odds. Uh, You think you've had a tough time in your own life? Well, stay tuned. This is The Other Side of Midnight Straight Ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. We got the refugees, all stars, rubber dubbing in the club. Why Clef John? John Forte. Roswell. Now I mean the streets are getting a little crazy. Look at, look at, look at, look at, look at, look at, look at here. Look at Shorty got back. Should I ask her for a dance? Hold on, there's too many in the wolf pack. And beside, dirty cats talking to her. Buying her fake furs and taking her to the people. Quiet as it's kept, they ain't even it's been. She spins his Franklin's at the malls with her friends. But a real girl living in the Kyle Kozad is a pretty impressive guy. A retired U.S. Navy Rear Admiral. These days, he is the president and CEO of the Naval Aviation Museum Foundation. A guy with an incredibly compelling life story. He is the author of a book called Relentless Positivity, A Common Veteran Battling Uncommon Odds. Admiral, uh, it's uh, great to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining me so early in the morning, especially on Veterans Day. Hey, this is my pleasure, Frank. Uh, Good morning from Pensacola, Florida. So, uh, Admiral, why don't we begin with uh, why you chose to join the military in in general? Um, How how old were you when you joined the military, and uh, what were you hoping to uh, get out of your military experience? Yeah, so so the story changed over time. I I went to high school in Las Vegas, Nevada, and uh, played basketball, and so I was recruited uh, by several schools. One of those schools was uh, the United States Naval Academy, and, you know, I, I got this bug in high school that I wanted to fly. Uh, and so really, you know, free education, the ability to uh, go to a school that had a good reputation uh, and then fly Navy airplanes at some point in my life, that really compelled me. 
you know, probably my sophomore and junior year in high school. And um, then why the Navy out of all the uh, branches of the military that you could be in? Was it was it was it uh, sports that led you to the Navy initially as well? Yeah. And, and, and part of that was also, uh, you know, a stubborn teenager. Uh, I was also recruited by some schools in the Midwest. And my dad told me that, uh, hey, that'd be great. We'd be closer. Uh, we could come see you. And so uh, what I did was, uh, you know, what most high school kids would do, uh, do exactly opposite of what your folks wanted you to do and ended up on the East Coast. Um, and so uh, you end up as a uh, a naval pilot. Um, how did you uh, how did you find your experience being a pilot in the Navy? You, you know, my my motivation to serve went from just I want to fly airplanes to you know just extremely gratifying. Uh, you know, I love the concept of service. I love being able to give back and do something you know bigger than just me. And so you know, my in- initial intent was you know I'll do this for five or six years and you know, do like some others do and jump and go to Delta Airlines and, you know, make money uh, for the rest of my life. Uh, and, you know, I just I realized, you know, after a few years, how much I really loved it and how much I really, you know, the profound difference that a life of service made for me. And, you know, that turned into a 35 year career. Wow. I, I you know, you've written about this in the uh, in the new book, Relentless Positivity, which uh, will encourage folks to absolutely get. But um, I imagine it's still potentially a somewhat difficult thing to talk about. You suffered a spinal cord injury, which resulted in you being being paralyzed. How did you How did you uh, come to suffer that injury? So you know, it was one of those single moments that changed your life forever. And for me, that happened uh, on the 16th of March, 2018. It was you know, really. I, I wish I could tell you that I was uh, jumping out of an airplane or I was climbing Mount Everest, um, but it was a simple. Uh, fall in our house. We lived in a historic house uh, here on board Naval Air Station Pensacola, uh, and I was going up uh, some very steep steps with a low uh, handrail banister, lost my balance, and probably fell down, uh, fell over the rail about, you know, three steps high, uh, suffered uh, two broken vertebrae and uh, some extensive damage to my spinal cord. So obviously that means your flying days are over. Yeah, absolutely. So that happened, you know, at that point in my career, you know, I had flown for 32 years, had done various jobs, uh, you know, around the world. I'd served in the White House Situation Room. I was in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba for a while, but, you know, lots of flying in that 32-year career. I'd ridden uh, to the rank of a two-star admiral, which is something that, you know, less than probably 5% of my peers had accomplished. So, you know, pretty successful up to that point in life. And then, you know, really you hit this roadblock and, um, I, I had a decision to make. The doctor told me I would never, never stand. I'd never get out of a wheelchair. Uh, and uh, I knew that, you know, I could either, you know, lay in a hospital bed, feel sorry for myself and ask why me? Or I could say, you know, screw this. Let's jump on back on the wagon, fight the battle of my life and, uh, you know, try to resume some sort of uh, new normalcy. Um, and, you know, that is one of the reasons that I was eager to have you on, because, uh, you know, since September 11th, Four times as many U.S. service members have died by suicide as have died in combat. There is a huge problem around the country with uh, veteran homelessness. Thirteen percent of adults experiencing homelessness homelessness are veterans. About 15 in every 100 veterans are living with PTSD. There's certainly a lot of veterans in every sector of the world, politics, business, academia, you name it, that are um, making incredibly meaningful contributions. But... 
a lot of veterans have a difficult time bouncing back uh, with the same sort of spring in their step, not to put it lightly, that they had prior to suffering either a physical injury or some sort of a traumatic brain injury. What is it about your kind of strength of will that led you to be so determined to continue with such a a meaningful career in terms of helping people, meaningful career in public service, and a meaningful career inspiring others? Yeah, so I I had several elements of of motivation. You know, number one was my faith, um, but I also had an incredible support network and and that's probably one of my biggest takeaways is, you know, I had my family, I had my Navy family, so they supported me. Um, and, uh, and you know, quite frankly, uh, when I was in, in the hospital uh, for the very first time, um, laying there in the ICU, my son uh, had come to see me. So he's, uh, you know, also a Navy pilot, and he uh, um, was headed out on his very first deployment. So he, you know, we wouldn't see him for seven or eight months, uh, wouldn't have a whole lot of communications with him. And, uh, you know, obviously a pretty traumatic experience emotionally for the entire family. And uh, he told his mom that, uh, hey, I'm, I'm going to talk to folks and see if I can uh, stay around here uh, and, and delay my deployment. And, and my wife interrupted him and said, no, you need to go do what you were trained to do. Go go fire missions. Go, you know, protect the country. Do what you need to do. I'll take care of your dad. And when he gets home, he's going to walk out to your helicopter and he's going to give you a hug. And, and mind you. Uh, so no pressure on me at all, right? Because the doctor just told me two days ago uh, that uh, I'd never stand up out of a wheelchair. So had a lot of those motivators. But um, when you talk about PTS, when you talk about some of those other things, you know, one of the really important elements for me was I just had a ton of support. And I, I created a new, a new network and I did something that I'd never done before. You know, I had to ask for help. I had to rely on other people uh, to help me out. And that uh, that helped get me through things. Uh, no, I, I can imagine. Tell me about uh, what you're doing with the Naval Aviation Museum Foundation. What exactly is the Naval Aviation Museum, pardon my ignorance, and uh, what's your role in terms of heading the foundation? Yeah, well, first off, Frank, you got to come down and see it. It's, I want it's to. Probably, I want uh, to. I was know, researching our... it a bit in uh, preparation for this interview. It sounds great. I'd love to see it. It's, uh, you know, I've got the coolest job in the world. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm the CEO of a nonprofit, and we're uh, responsible for uh, raising funds for day-to-day operations of the National Naval Aviation Museum here in Pensacola. So um, one of the largest aviation museums in the country. We've got about 150 different aircraft that are on display on our campus. You know, but, you know, our mission is to, you know, help tell the public the story of naval aviation and the people. You know, I call them common people who, you know, choose to do uncommon things for their country in the line of service. Uh, and so, you know, I get to help tell those stories. And, you know, w- one of the things that, uh, you know, really, really motivated me and helped me uh, was, you know, I, I credit the kind of my character. Um, so the grit, the determination, probably some stubbornness uh, that everything that I learned from naval aviation and being a pilot, you know, that really helped me focus my mind uh, and my you know spirituality on this recovery, you know, I can do it. I, it this was nothing more than, uh, quite frankly, a, uh, a flight plan change in life. You know, I, I was told to go right and uh, ran into a door and had to go left. Uh, and so 100% of the proceeds for the book that you mentioned, Relentless Positivity, are going to go right back to the National Naval Aviation Museum. So we can tell people like you the story of heroes uh, that you might not otherwise know about. Given your experience and the role that your faith pay, played in your 
um, mental, psychological, and emotional recovery, if not necessarily your physical recovery. What do you think we as a country can learn about how to care for our veterans when they suffer from either physical or mental injuries so they don't become one of the statistics that I just alluded to? Yeah, that's a great question. And, um, you know, I guess from my perspective, uh, again, I, I was, you know, before I got hurt, and I still am a type A personality, full speed ahead. I can do anything. There's nothing that I can't do. Um, it, and so I had to learn how to rely on people. You know, when, when I was in the hospital, you know, immediately after the accident, I couldn't even roll in, over in bed by myself. I had to relearn how to walk. Uh, and so, you know, for others, uh, knowing somebody in your life who's a veteran, uh, who served, who may have some, uh, you know, injuries, it's, it's easy to see when, you know, I come into a room uh, and, you know, I'm using a walker now. I drive my truck. Uh, so, you know, it, it's not always apparent, but and I've got some physical abilities that are different than others. Um, you know, the folks with PTS, those are invisible. Uh, so you just have to, you got to be a friend. Don't be afraid to pick up the phone to call people. Um, be part of a support network and realize uh, that, uh, you know, folks don't always talk about some of those really, really tough experiences they've had when they've served, especially those folks you know, who are in combat theaters. One of um, one of the things that uh, I think a lot of folks bristle at to some extent is the fact that Veterans Day be, has become in some quarters and for some people almost just another day off. Uh, it's all about uh, sh- sales at department stores and kind of divorced from the original purpose of uh, honoring veterans and celebrating the contributions of veterans. What do you think the best way for people to remember Veterans Day is? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And, you know, for me as a 35-year veteran, I can tell you that, you know, I had to pack up and leave my family. I did multiple deployments. I was probably gone for, you know, seven years of, you know, my 35-year career. Uh, The kids moved schools and, you know, it's it's a tough lifestyle. And people, you know, when we use the word sacrifice, you know, it's it's not just, you know, a word. Uh, And so in in my life and, you know, my uh, experience, you know, Veterans Day is 365 days a year. Those are the folks who, you know, allow us you know, to debate politics, allow us to, you know, choose our uh, um, source of religion. Uh, And so, you know, for me, uh, and this is a cool part of my job. Yesterday, I got to meet a guy named Royce Williams, who's, uh, you know, in his uh, late 80s. Uh, Royce was a Korean War era pilot who uh, um, completely benounced to himself, took off one day from the carrier Oriskany and ended up shooting down four or five unconfirmed um, Soviet MiGs. And so, you know, it's history, guys like that. Uh, maybe they didn't have a shoot down. Maybe they just served three years. But, you know, to be able to say, hey, thanks for your service and, and, and really understand what that means. It's not just, you know, you went to boot camp and mm. you got to carry a gun around for a while. You know, they, they really poured their lives into something much greater than just their personal gain. We're talking with uh, Rear Admiral Kyle Kozad, author of the book Relentless Positivity. It's available on Amazon or wherever books are available. Um, Admiral, what what caused you to write this book? What are you hoping people get out of this? Well, you know, some some people, you know, say, hey, this this is going to be a how to cope or, you know, it, it'll be a one, two, three recipe book. But, you know, you know, recovering from an accident or a circumstance and, you know, think about it. Everybody's got a circumstance in their life, uh, whether that's you know, a bad day at school, a bad report card, you know, the car won't start or something much more serious like a cancer diagnosis, PTS or, you know, paralysis. Uh, And and so I just wanted to tell my story um, of, you know, kind of my service at the beginning, but also talk about the accident and really what motivated me to overcome the battle of my life. 
No, it's uh, it's terrific. I, I just got a copy of it yesterday, and uh, I've been uh, I've been working my way through it. It's uh, really well written, and uh, you tell a lot of different aspects of your your military life and your personal life. And uh, it's really uh, it's a very intimate uh, memoir, but also a very telling how to guide and uh, good for a lot of other people other than veterans, uh, especially people that may be struggling to overcome some degree of uh, of adversity in your own life. Hey, um, obviously, this is a, a talk station, a news talk station. A lot of people might also watch cable news from time to time. A guy that was a fixture on cable news for a long time was uh, Dr. Charles Krauthammer, who uh, was also paralyzed from the waist down. Brilliant uh, psychiatrist, brilliant writer, and uh, the guy that made a career for himself as a pundit. You talked a little bit about um, Charles Krauthammer and how seeing him sort of inspired you to some extent. I'm wondering if you could chat a little bit about that, what seeing Krauthammer and seeing his work meant for you in your own life. Yeah, and um, so, you know, when I was first injured, I'll I'll be honest with you, I've I've always been a fan of his and, you know, loved to listen to him, didn't always agree with him, uh, but, uh, you know, he was a brilliant mind. And I really didn't realize that he was in a wheelchair, that he was, uh, I think he was quadriplegic uh, until after my accident and I paid a little more attention. And so, you know, that that was just one of those examples that, uh, you know, this isn't a pity party. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Pick yourself up, figure out what your new normal looks like and and try to find a new purpose. And that's what I did. Um, You know, since it's Veterans Day, I'll I'll be honest with you, uh, the very first time in physical therapy where, you know, they pulled me out of my, my wheelchair in this real clunky mechanical device, uh, and I stood up, and, you know, I'm six foot four. I'm a very, fairly tall guy. You know, as soon as I stood up, in the back of my mind, I said, that doctor doesn't know what he's talking about. I can do more than, you know, what he gave us as a prognosis. And I told my wife that night, I said, you know what? I, I want to I work my butt off, and I want to go back, and I want to serve as, you know, in my previous job in the United States Navy. And she kind of rolled her eyes and said, you can't do that. And I said, well, watch me. Um, and so uh, that was one of my motivations. And eventually, you know, I served my last two and a half years uh, in uniform. I was able to, you know, return to full duty. You know, I traveled. I had 50,000 people all around the country and actually around the world that worked, you know, for me in naval training and education. Uh, so I was a guy in the in the airport hustling around in my wheelchair, uh, learning how to get on and off airplanes and, you know, going out and, you know, doing the business of naval education and training, but also, you know, started to inspire folks. You know, they saw what I adversity I had overcome. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's kind of been the second chapter of my life is to be able to tell that story mm. uh, unashamedly and uh, hopefully, you know, just plant a sliver of hope or uh, a spark of encouragement for somebody you know, who's having a bad day, whether that's a report card, a girlfriend, uh, you know, or something more serious like I suffered. Tell me uh, tell me what happened the first time that you were offered antidepressants. Yeah, good question. I I was in uh, ICU and, you know, I had this, you know, slew of medicine in front of me and the nurse is going through and, you know, she said, this one's your antidepressant. And and I kind of looked at her and I said, you know, what's up with that? Why why do I need this? Um, And she said, you know, people who suffer a significant traumatic injury uh, like I had suffered, you know, often, you know, fall into dark places and they consider self-harm. And, you know, I wasn't even close to that. Uh, I, I, I really, you know, the, the title of the book is Relentless Positivity. That's kind of how I approached this. Uh, I was always looking ahead. And so, I, you know, I told her that, you know, I was fine. I didn't need anything. But it, it got me to think about, 
you know, the psychological aspect of a significant event in your life like this. And so, again, you know, I leaned on the support of my family. I leaned on my faith uh, to be able to carry me, me through this. And, you know, when people ask about, hey, tell me about the bad days. My, when I wrote this book, my mom was like, hey, that's good, but you really didn't talk about, you know, being depressed or anything else. Well, guess what? I, I, I never had to deal with that. I was fortunate. Uh, my glass is always, you know, overflowing. Uh, it's not just half full, it's overflowing. Uh, so that was never an issue for me. We have a lot of folks listening to us right now that may not be veterans. They may not even be uh, people of faith, but they might be suffering some degree of adversity. Maybe it's – in fact, I know that's true because they, they write to me. Maybe it's a financial hardship. Maybe it's a physical hardship. Maybe it's uh, something like a clinical depression. Taking away the um, kind of the toughness that comes with being a Navy fighter pilot and rising all the way through the ranks of being a, an admiral, taking away the strength that you draw from from God and from your faith, maybe even taking away the support group that you had around me uh, had around you with your family. Is there any advice absent those things? And I realize that is taking away a great deal. Is there any advice that you'd give to people listening to us right now? on how they can cope with adversity, uh, be it physical, mental, emotional, financial, in their own life? Yeah, so um, I would say, number one, you know, accept the fact that you're not different. Uh, everybody has a circumstance. Everybody has that, you know, that, that battle that they have to face. Some battles are larger than others. So, you know, I, I have always refused to accept the word can't. Nobody can tell me what I can't do. Uh, and, you know, I try to flip that around. And number one, you know, whatever this obstacle is that's in your life, you know, figure out how you can uh, use that for a new purpose. You know, how can you take uh, a lemon and turn it into lemonade? How can you make something good out of that circumstance? And, you know, I've, I've got a, a challenge coin. So it's a military challenge coin that I give to people who, you know, do good things. Uh, and on that coin, it says, don't ever let anyone tell you what you can't do. Show them what you can do. And right. I really believe that we all have that within us. You just got to deep dig down, you know, deep inside. And, you know, it's not about your mobility. It's not about some other things. It's about what you have in your head and what you have in your heart. Well, Admiral, it's a real treat talking with you. I hope we can talk again. And I'm looking forward to seeing you at the museum down there in Florida. That's great, Frank. I appreciate you having me on. And, uh, to your listeners and everybody else out there, happy Veterans Day. Absolutely. The book is Relentless Positivity, a common veteran battling uncommon odds. Its author is uh, Rear Admiral Kyle Kozad, retired Navy pilot and paralyzed veteran. You want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
excuse me. This is uh, a song called Rum and Cola from Jenny Broke the Window. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You want to comment on uh, anything we're talking about, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. So uh, if you listen to this show, you know what a day yesterday was poised to be for me. So yesterday I was um, – I, I had th- four missions, right? One, get a haircut. Now, I get to bed around 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning – my haircut was scheduled at 9.30. Already not the most convenient. Two, go to the dentist. Now, my dentist appointment was originally scheduled at 4 o'clock, but I moved it up to 2 o'clock, which leads me to number three, which was this uh, party that I uh, was asked to go to, I was invited to, for um, a media outlet. And then lastly, because I was going to be in early, I agreed to meet a friend of mine for dinner. So four things. Dinner, dentist, party. Well, not really a party. It's more of a, a studio office opening, right? And uh haircut, right? Those are my four things. So sure enough, I uh, get home, looking after Carmine for a little bit. I sleep for two hours. I have my multiple alarms wake me up at 9.15. I go around the corner to the barbershop, get my haircut. And I have to tell you, it looks great. It look, looks great. It was, I didn't realize it's now $30, because when you walk in, and this is, you know, I'm really the unsung victim of inflation here. Walk into the barber shop, I see men's haircut, $25, and then I sit down in the bar, and I had $25 on me, and then I sit down in the barber's chair. They don't take credit cards, and they don't even take Venmo anymore. I sit down in the barber's chair, and I see they have a price list in front of me. It's now $30, and I didn't have $30 on me. So I had to go to the ATM after my haircut and come back and, and pay this fellow. Okay, get the haircut done. And then it comes to the dental appointment. I go to the dental appointment. And uh, I'm, I go through there. All goes well there. Well, well enough. I'll tell you about that a little bit later. And then I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. I've, I feel I haven't really slept because I got up to go to the haircutter. And I got up a second time to go to the dentist. Now when I come back from the dentist, uh, my son is up and I say to my wife, all right, I'll look after Carmine because I usually watch him in the afternoon after his babysitter leaves. And she said, no, she took pity on me. She could tell I was exhausted and hadn't slept. She said, no, go ahead, go to sleep. I'll find a way to work and still look after him, which was very nice. So then I sleep um, another uh, hour or so and I said, and now I feel like I lived a whole day at this point. Meanwhile, I haven't begun to prepare for the show a lick at this point. And so I said, you know, I don't think I'm going to go to that um, that party. You know, it was, I'll tell you, I don't think there's any reason I shouldn't tell you. It was for Newsmax. Newsmax was having a party. And the, the CEO of Newsmax, Chris Ruddy, has been very good to me over the years. And I worked there for a year. And, you know, it's a good networking event. And there's free drinks, which is important. But uh, if I ever get fired from radio, you know, it's always nice to have some friends over there. But I said to Rachel, I said, I don't think I could go to this. I just can't. And so um, she says, yes, of course you can't. What you're trying to do today is insane. So I didn't end up going to the party. I felt bad, uh, but uh, it was very nice of them to invite me, but I didn't end up going. And so what that means then is I moved my dental appointment earlier so that I could attend a party that I never ended up attending. But it's just as well. Because I got to get some work done, uh, spend a little time with Carmine. And then 
I, I felt bad because I made arrangements to meet my friend at 7.30 because I was supposed to be done at the Newsmax party at 7. And so she made reservations and everything. So I still came in early to meet her. So I got three out of my four things done that I had uh, planned for, but I didn't get to go to the Newsmax party. But haircut, dentist, dinner, all done. So on the whole, it was a pretty productive day, even though it's certainly ironic that I moved my dental appointment for a party that, you know, couldn't attend. All right. Hey, if you want to join the uh, Facebook group, uh, go on and search Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. Right now, there are a barrage of people in the Facebook group taking issue with uh, Joy Damiani. A lot of people didn't like her. A lot of people don't like me for having her. And you know what? That's what the Facebook group's all about. It's fans and haters. You don't like things we do? That's the place to express it. Your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. It's Friday. It's the weekend. Hopefully, you're going to have some fun this weekend. And uh, I'm looking forward to my wife and I are slated, depending on my son's sleep schedule, which yesterday was great. He slept through the whole night. Um, Depending on my son's sleep schedule and my wife's willingness to embark on this plan, we're slated to uh, go out to Long Island this weekend. We're going to stop in over at Jake's 58 on Saturday, connect with some friends, some family. And uh, my mother-in-law is out there on Long Island, so we're going to bring Carmine over to her house to spend the night. Unless he has a difficult time tonight as well, then maybe we'll alter that. But uh, I'm looking forward to being there. Now, it is Veterans Day, and I want to emphasize something that I uh, talked to, uh, that I mentioned in my conversation with Admiral Kozad. Since September 11th, Four times as many service members have died by suicide as have died in combat. Now, think about that. Think of all the people that died in the World Trade Center, right? Multiply that by by several, right? So if there were 3,000 people that died in the World Trade Center, think about the tens of thousands that have died in combat since then. And then think about the fact that four times as many service members have died by suicide as have died in combat. You're approaching, um, you know, an alarming number. So suicide among veterans is a real problem. 
15 out of every 100 veterans are experiencing and living with PTSD. 13% of adults experiencing homelessness are veterans. You want to talk about the situation in terms of drug abuse and alcohol abuse among veterans? It is alarming. There are a lot of organizations that do some great work that help veterans in big ways and small ways. There's a group called Puppies Behind Bars, which links veterans with PTSD with dogs trained by prisoners, helping three causes at once, which I just love because I like prisoners, I like dogs, and I like veterans. Building Homes for Heroes constructs houses for veterans. The Wounded Warrior Project, which I know had some controversy early on, it seems like they're in a better place now, they offer services from mental health resources to job coaching. And you can give, if um, you're wondering what can you do, you can volunteer. You can give rides to veterans with disabilities via disabled American veterans or write letters via Operation Gratitude. If you're an employer, you can be one of the many recruiters who specialize in connecting veterans and, and connecting them to jobs specifically. There is a huge business case to be made for hiring veterans who bring specific skills such as leadership ability and a strong sense of mission. That's according not to me, but to research from Syracuse's Institute for Veterans and Military Families. Um, One group that I'm associated with that you're going to be hearing, I think, a lot more about in the next year or so is a group called the Gold Shield, which is a, it's not a charity, but it is a, an organization that's designed to help end veteran suicide. Basically, um, and you can learn more about them at thegoldshield.us, if you're a business, you essentially put this gold shield in your window. That sends a message to every patron that you're interested in helping end veteran suicide, and uh, you donate a portion of your proceeds to one of a number of reputable charities. And then uh, if you're a patron and you see the gold shield in the window of a business, you know that's a business that is interested in ending veteran suicide. So they have an interesting video on the website at thegoldshield.us. That's thegoldshield.us. So um, I'm a big believer in, in what all these groups are doing, but especially them. Hey, another group that I'm a big believer in is the Siller Foundation. What they do in terms of helping veterans is just extraordinary. And uh, especially veterans that uh, that have di- been disabled because of their um, injuries or something like that. All right. Uh, I'm going to get to your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. I did want to share this kind of ethical dilemma with you. You know, there was a lot of attention paid to Nicholas Cruz, and Nicholas Cruz is not someone whose name I even want to mention because I don't like to turn these school shooters into celebrities because I don't want someone that's mentally unbalanced potentially to be listening to me and say, oh, boy, uh, I don't have a lot going on for me necessarily, and if, if I go out and commit a mass shooting in a school or shoot up some innocent people, then Frank Morano is going to talk about me on the radio. I don't like to do that, but uh, the circumstances, I, I kind of have to here. So he was on trial in a death penalty case for the uh, Parkland school shooting. And as a jury weighed his fate, 
police raided his brother's home. Zach Cruz left Florida after the 2018 massacre. Now, the men who gave him a home in Virginia are accused of stealing his inheritance. So by the time the jury filed back into the Florida courtroom, its benches were were full. Here were the families whose sons and daughters and spouses had been slaughtered. Here were the attorneys who had asked survivors to testify about the day their limbs, their entire lives, had been irrevocably maimed. Here were the sheriff's deputies, the judge, all so on and so forth, waiting for the moment when they would learn what was going to happen to Nicholas Cruz. But when the Parkland School Shooter Show looked up, there was one person who wasn't there, his brother, Zachary. Zachary Cruz, who's 22 years old, was the only close family member he had left. See, when Cruz, Nicholas Cruz, went on this killing rampage at his former high school, it was Zach, then 17, who agonized over whether he could have done something to prevent it. I mean, you imagine what that must be like. I I mean, I know what uh, I have an idea, I should say, of what it must be like to lose a child in one of these senseless mass shootings. But to have your brother or your child be the mass shooter, I think in some ways it's, I don't want to say it's worse than having a child that's a victim, but in some ways it might be. But anyway, uh, Zachary Cruz agonized over whether he could have done something to prevent what his brother did. When Nicholas Cruz got arrested, it was Zach who went into the interrogation room to demand Why did you do this? And when Nicholas Cruz started to sob, it was Zach who wrapped his older brother in his arms. Um, Zach promised his brother, who he calls Nick, I'm going to come to your trial. I'll come to everything. I swear on everything. I love you. I will come see you every chance I'm given. All right. No matter what happens. That's according to transcripts from their interactions. Four and a half years later, Zach had not been to Florida in months. He rarely held online video visits with his brother. And despite being the most highly anticipated witness in the death penalty trial, Zach never came to testify. Um, the, so to the defense team, Zach not taking the stand was a lost opportunity to show what the Cruz brothers had endured growing up. He really hurt his brother's defense by not testifying. To the prosecutors, it was also a missed opportunity to cross-examine the person who may have best understood the mental state of one of the nation's deadliest school shooters. But Zach's absence was also noticeable to investigators far from Florida who saw it as another sign of what they had suspected for more than a year. Zachary Cruz was in trouble. On October 5th, one week before the verdict, police raided the house where Zach lives in Virginia. Zach was photographed sitting outside the house, surrounded by sheriff's deputies, but they weren't there to arrest him. They said he was a victim of a crime. The alleged perpetrators were Richard Moore and Mike Donovan, both 45 years old. These Virginia entrepreneurs who offered to take Zach in Shortly after the shooting and in all sorts of depositions and previous interviews, Zach has called the the couple his guardians, saying they gave him a home, a family and a place to do the one thing he loved, skateboard. But police and the court records allege that Moore and Donovan, who were already 
being prosecuted by state and federal agencies for their business practices stole the money that Zach inherited from his late mother's estate, more than $400,000, in order to pay taxes, bills, and car payments on their Ferrari. During the raid of the couple's home and business headquarters, police collected more than 90 phones, computers, and other devices as evidence. Moore and Donovan were charged with attempting, with obtaining money by false pretenses and exploiting someone who's mentally incapacitated. They were released from jail on $50,000 bond. Uh, the men, by the way, they call the charges bogus, and they contend Zach is being victimized not by them, but by the Augusta County Sheriff's Department, accusing their deputies of handcuffing and holding Zach at gunpoint during the raid. Donovan, uh, one of these men that's accused of exploiting this other young man, wrote in an email to the Washington Post, we love Zach and we would never exploit him. Uh, saying Zach has always had 100% control over what happened to his money. But these arrests of Moore and Donovan came more than a year after a Virginia social services agency began to question whether Zach, who had no other family looking out for him, was being taken advantage of. And so even though Zach is an adult and Moore and Donovan have no legal guardianship over him, he has become entangled in the complex web that surrounds this couple, one that involves dozens of lawsuits, uh, a whole bunch of other businesses, an FBI investigation, a very contentious battle with uh, the reality TV star Dog the Bounty Hunter. And on the day of the verdict in Florida, the jury delivered a decisive outcome for Nicholas Cruz. Instead of being executed, he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. But for Zach, the future is much less certain. He never finished high school. He doesn't have a job. And if convicted, the men who took him in could go to prison. So um, this is very sad, I got to tell you. Uh, This guy seems like he has been abused and exploited by just about everybody that he's known. Um, Zach had known these two guys for less than two weeks when he agreed to move with them to Virginia. And he was orphaned, homeless, and on probation. His adopted mother who raised him and his brother since they were babies, died unexpectedly of pneumonia. Three months later, Nicholas Cruz opens fire at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High, killing three staff members and 14 students. By the way, people Zach knew growing up. And after Zach was interviewed by detectives for hours, he hid out from the news cameras for days. And in March, he took his skateboard to Stoneman Douglas trying to understand what his brother had done there. And he was arrested for trespassing. And he spent 10 days in jail, much of it on suicide watch. And um, it's just such a sad situation. My heart goes out especially to the family members that lost loved ones here. But I also do feel bad for this, um, the brother here, because it seems like he's been taken advantage of and exploited like crazy. Um, So... Again, the this couple says that they're innocent, they're not exploiting anyone, but I think this is just a pretty clear textbook example of exploitation of somebody that uh, maybe doesn't have the mental capacity to deal. By the way, the, la- the, the other thing that I took note of with this Nicholas Cruz trial is what happened with the judge. Have you followed this? Have you heard about this? The judge in this case 
Elizabeth Scherer. After the sentencing hearing ended, do you know what she did? She hugged the prosecutors. This is raising a lot of questions, including a lot of ethical questions, about whether it's appropriate for a judge to be hugging the lawyers for one side here. These hugs followed two days of testimony that, without restriction, allowed the grieving family's victims to vent. So the public defenders who were representing him, they may now argue that based on this hug that was observed in clear view of the prosecution and everybody else, that this judge might no longer be impartial. So I do wonder if this judge's compulsion to hug the prosecutors might end up hurting this case here and giving them an appellate issue. The judge's interaction with the defense culminated in a tense exchange with public defender Gordon Weeks that resulted in her ordering to him to, quote, go sit down. So as of now, the Florida Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers asked the uh, chief judge in Florida to address the treatment that the judge gave the defense attorney. After the hearing ended, the judge also hugged the victim's families, including Fred and uh, Jennifer Gutenberg, the parents of a 14-year-old who Cruz shot in the back as she ran away from him. Um, If you want to comment on that, I'd love to know what you think. Do you think it's okay for a judge in a death penalty case to be hugging the prosecutors even after the sentencing occurs? What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. I think the optics of this are really not helpful. And I would be concerned about this. I mean, I think it's one thing if you run into a lawyer at church or a, or a bar or a restaurant or at a museum or in the park and you happen to run into that person. You've just been through a an emotional and a trying experience together and you give them a hug. I think that's one thing. I think to hug prosecutors in open court like this, I think that's another. Curious what you think. 800-848-9222, because especially in this case, this has been a case where the defense has sparred with the judge for years. And the defense probably thought the judge was biased. And then at the end of the trial, she goes and hugs the prosecutor. What do you think? Appropriate? Inappropriate? 800-848-9222. Let me, uh, I'm going to say a lot of people holding. I'm going to get to as many people as we can here. Ron is in Michigan. Hello, Ron. Good morning, Frank. Frank, uh, this is Veterans Day. There is also a very big problem with suicides in the active duty military right now. That's a great point. Great point. And and Frank, can I one final point about Carmine? Do you take him out for strolls to get him fresh air? That knocks him out. Absolutely. And one other thing, this is very important. I, I had three boys, and all three of them could swim before they could actually walk. You should get you and your wife should get Carmine in a swimming program, either the YMCA, some public, uh, you know, private pool, where you take him in there right now and you start him swimming. That's very good for him. You know, that's a great idea. Um, You know, he does like the water. He does like swimming. And um, we have a a, – thank you, Ron. We're friends with another couple who has a baby uh, about Carmine's age, and he's already swimming. And uh, he can't even talk, can't walk, and he's swimming. 
So uh, that is very, uh, that's actually a great suggestion. And uh, I think I'm a big believer in teaching children to swim early. My wife is not much of a swimmer. She didn't have a swimming pool growing up. I did. I was lucky enough to have a swimming pool growing up. And I'm a big believer in teaching children to swim as early as possible because you really, if you know, if you don't eliminate it, you reduce a whole category of ways in which someone can die. So eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Alex is in Mountain View, California. Hello, Alex. Well, hi. Actually, I wanted to ask you uh, if you're still you're still taking like ask Frank questions. Well, here, here you are, Alex. So go ahead. It's your it's your dime. Ask whatever you like. Okay. Okay, uh, well, uh, I wanted to ask you, which of your colleagues on uh, WABC Radio and Fox News correctly guessed the, uh, or predicted the, the red uh, ripple instead of incorrectly guessing the, uh, the red wave? Well, I, I can't speak to um, Fox News. I don't know. And they're not my colleagues. I don't work there. I don't do anything on there. They don't even have me on. But uh, in terms of um, our radio station, I don't really know. I, I, I don't. Uh, I couldn't really say. I don't know. I think maybe Curtis uh, said that there was going to be more modest um, gains than a lot of people were expecting, but uh, but I don't really know. I think most of the most of what I heard was expecting a, a red wave. But uh, if any, if it, if anybody that I heard, and I don't hear every minute of what everybody says, but everybody that I heard, um, I think Curtis was the closest to being accurate. Okay. Yeah, the motivation for my question is that, I mean, there's a lot of commentators, and and it's hard to tell which one really knows their stuff. And the way to to figure out who really knows their stuff is to uh, determine who comes closest in their prediction of any political outcome. So so I guess Curtis knows his stuff. Yeah, well, you know what, though, but Alex, I I don't know that... um... That just because you predict an election accurately or inaccurately, you don't know your stuff. Now, I I agree with you in that when you hear political analysis from people, you don't want to be hearing it from a cheerleader or a detractor that's disguising their hopes and and wishes as objective political analysis. And I try not to do that. And if you listen, and even though I voted for Zeldin, I never thought that he was going to come close to winning. In fact, he came much closer to winning than I ever expected. But um, I think... That uh, I think that I think Curtis fits that bill, but I think just because somebody makes a prediction and it's inaccurate, it doesn't mean they don't know their stuff. Um, I think it just means that you know there are a lot of factors when predicting things, and um, these people aren't fortune tellers; they're not psychics, right? So you you want to know the secret to predicting things, and this is where this is part of the Moreno method here. You ready for this? Turn up the volume. Here's what you always have to do. Doesn't matter whether it's sports, politics, radio, television, entertainment, the economy. Here's what you have to do. Every single prediction that you can make, predict the underdog. Every single time. Predict the underdog. Predict the wildest outcome. Because here's what happens. If you're wrong... Everyone assumes, oh, of course that wasn't going to happen. Of course, uh, you know, um, whatever, the the Tampa Bay Devil Rays were not going to win the World Series. But if you're right and you're out there with such an outlandish prediction, everyone will remember it. And you'll then get credit for making such an outlandish prediction and be accurate. That's the trick. And I'm not even talking about on the radio. I'm talking about even in your own life. I've seen this work time and time again, this strategy. Make the craziest predictions you can, 
And if you're wrong, nobody expects you to be right. But if you're right, you can dine out on that for years. Trust me. 800-848-9222. Keith is in Florida. Hello, Keith. Hey, what is at? Listen to it. Um, I still I like your prediction method. I still owe you on the uh, Arizona one, where I still think uh, that was not corrected. But moving on topic about the cruise and the hug, I totally think that's just absolutely uh, inappropriate. But I'm going to give you a little bit more insight on that. Um, family member of mine, friend, in-laws, whatever, um, knew the family really well. Mm. The mother and father who adopted the cruises, really sweet people, had her- horrendous problems raising them, probably a... Um, um, spoke to the Board of Education, the police, probably near 30 times. Never, never, never helped them by taking them off their, off their harms and you know, into a, help with the hospitals, whatever. And then she passed away, and two weeks later, that's what happened. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so um, well, I mean, it's such a sad situation, uh, saddest of all for the uh, people that uh, lost children here. But um, I agree with you. I think it was a little out of line, more than a little out of line, for the judge to hug the prosecutors this way. Yeah, the system dropped it there. Appreciate yeah. it. Hey, thanks, Keith. I appreciate the insight. 800-848-9222. Uh, Tony is in New Jersey. Hello, Tony. Tony. Thank you, Tony. Mike is in Myrtle Beach. Hello, Mike. Frank, how Hi. are you? And good morrow, TGIFF. I'll tell you. Um, you have some great guests and interviews, and, and that lady before, uh, a while ago, uh, interesting. I've told friends for years, um, the Native American Indians, they don't celebrate Thanksgiving. And the whole thing about, um, you know, uh, 9-11 and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, I was telling mom and dad, rest their souls, was like Switzerland during World War II. They said, oh, we're, we're neutral, we're neutral. You know what? It's disgusting. Uh, what happened, I volunteered three weeks after 9-11. I knew uh, eight people from uh, Rockville Center area, and a day I'll never forget. And I, I got to tell uh, Frank, and I appreciate it, um, uh, all the veterans, everybody, dad's oldest friend when he grew up in Rockville Center, uh, Uncle Paul is in Beth Page. He's 97. He fought in uh, 80, 82nd Airborne Battle of the Bulge. And uh, all, the, all the veterans, you know, raise a glass today. And and always remember, and same with uh, the the police. Back to blue. I, I've always said that. And I'll continue to say that. And if I could finish with this, uh, uh, Frank, uh, my buddy Mike. We went to grammar school together. These school shootings. His uh, daughter-in-law was six months pregnant. She was in the far end of the grammar school in Connecticut when that psycho, twisted, mentally disturbed dude. Uh, so you know the climate we live in. It's crazy. Uh, let's hope things calm down, but it's, it's the greatest country in the world and we're the most violent amongst each other in many areas. But this, uh, this is sickening with, with uh, school shootings, like you said. Frank, always a good show. All right? Have a good weekend, good Mike. Weekend. Thanks for the feedback. Appreciate it. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Ron Konkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Um, first of all, I want to wish all past and present Veterans out there, a very happy Veterans Day, especially my dad, who's in heaven, who served in Vietnam. Um, I was on hold for a, an hour and a half, and usually I would have been like, ah, whatever. But that woman that you interviewed, Frank, got my blood pressure boiling. Uh, she just, I don't want to, because we're on the radio, I want to keep it 
professional. Um, I just couldn't believe what she was spewing out of her lips. I'm glad you corrected her many times. We were attacked, and you mentioned Pearl Harbor, 9-11, and the other. And I just could not believe on Veterans Day, Frank. And I know you, to have that woman on, I think she, she's, a, she's a piece. Okay, and that's where I'm going to leave it. And um, I hope you have a great weekend, Frank. I just got me very upset listening to her spew her um, bull. We'll put it that way. Have a good night, Frank. Hey, thanks, Joe. Maybe I'll see you at Jake's 58 tomorrow. Yeah, uh, real quick. I, um, I was, I'm very eager to have every point of view on this show, right? So uh, I realized, you know, no question about it. She was saying a lot of things that I staunchly disagree with. I mean, she called uh, the American military terrorist and Nazis, which I couldn't I couldn't disagree with more. However, I think a lot of what she has said about what America is doing currently in Yemen is right on the money. I think a lot of what she has said about uh, what America is doing in terms of partnering with the Saudis. And as far as I'm concerned, the Saudis have never ever been held accountable for what they did in the run-up to the September 11th attacks, I think she's on the money in that. Uh, That being said, she loses me when she's making these comparisons between uh, the military and the Nazis. But uh, I've read much of what she's written. I've heard some of her podcasts. I find her to be an intelligent woman. And again, uh, I will say the same thing of her that I will say of uh, a lot of other people today which is they're um, a lot more brave than I am because they actually put on the uniform of the United States military, and I never have. So uh, so there's that. So, you know, again, I do try to ask polite but challenging questions to everybody, and she was no exception, and uh, I hope people got something out of the interview. But if you didn't, what can I say? All right, uh, we're going to do $1,000 a minute in just a, in a, just a moment. But Neil on Staten Island has been holding a while. Neil is not only a veteran, but active in a wide variety of veterans organizations. Uh, Neil, happy Veterans Day. Thank you, Frank. You know, I actually called intending to wish everyone a happy Veterans Day. I've been blessed to know veterans who fought in Pearl Harbor, Battle of the Bulge, Korea, uh, Vietnam. Iraq, Lebanon, and uh, they're the greatest people on earth. Uh, Not everyone in the military has the chance to go into combat, but they always have the chance that they're going to put their life down for their country if they're called on to do so. Uh, But to hear this whack-a-doodle that you had on, Frank, you know, it was the wrong day to put her on. The same way that KFC uh, did the chicken thing on Crystal Knox, uh, it was the same thing here. Uh, Veterans Day, I don't think she should have been on the air. Um, she, she's just a nitwit. That when, when you start with the, as you said, uh, the military's terrorism, and she starts with Trump and his family's Nazis. I mean, every time someone starts calling other people Nazis, mm. you know there's something wrong with yeah, them. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. And, I, and I've always said that. Uh, but uh, it's, a, that's a, it's a good point, uh, Neil. Um, you know, hey, maybe you're right. I'm nothing, nothing else to add there. Neil, have a good weekend. Happy Veterans Day. Thanks for calling and straightening us out. God bless you, Frank. Thank Pre- you. Appreciate it. Seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. We are going to give you an opportunity to win some money. Seventh caller, and you will be given the opportunity to um, answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. 
If you can do that, you will be $1,000 richer. 800-848-9222, minute, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Here comes the weekend. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, you want to stay in touch with me throughout the weekend? You can find me on Twitter at Frank Moreno. That's Frank M O R A N O. Try to decide if I'm going to continue paying for my verified blue check. Not sure. I um, I feel like the trendy thing now to do is not to have a blue check. But, I, I, you know, I was a legacy blue check. I was before they opened it up to everybody. I feel like that should be memorialized somehow. So that is one of the things that I'm going to be doing some soul searching with over the weekend. You can also email me. Frank.Moreno at uh, WABCRadio.com. And uh, if you want to email me, I'll put you on my email list. I send out these email alerts of when I've written something or when I'm going to be on television, sometimes on radio, or when I'm raising money for this charitable endeavor or that charitable endeavor. If you want to be on my email list, just email me, shoot me a note, and say, uh, add me to your email list. Frank.Moreno at WABCRadio.com. Meantime, going to try and give one of you an opportunity to win some money as part of the other side of midnight presents it's the thousand dollar minute answer 10 questions correctly in one minute and you could win one thousand dollars here's your host frank morano hey oh by the way i have thought um that we were going to give the fella yesterday an opportunity to compete again we w- w- so what was the deal here I-, I i felt bad for this guy because his phone crapped out no. yesterday yeah that's his problem but w- a lot of people think that we did it because no. because we didn't want him to win the no. money no 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 his phone crapped out which you can clearly hear cuz you always hear that tone when a caller hangs up and he also paused like he didn't know the answer to what was Kramer's first name. He, he didn't know. He didn't know. And then all of a sudden he was gone. So it sounded like to me that either he didn't know the answer and just, and just left or his phone crapped out. And in that case, that's on him. You, you, your phone hung up. That's your problem. You don't have a good phone connection, whatever the case is. That's on you. Yeah, I feel bad for the guy. I because, feel bad too, but that's the way we have yeah. to draw a line. Frank. Yeah, ah, uh, you're right. You're right. We I'm have too, to give everybody second chances all the time. Yeah, well, but his, he, and it was his fault. He, yeah, he was on a roll. Even Jeopardy does the second chances. They had the second chance 
tournament. Although it is interesting, I don't know if people follow Jeopardy, but so it's Tournament of Champions week now. I didn't get to see yeah. last night, but it was you know it's been interesting, and um, they have all these great Jeopardy champions. But they also had a a second chance week where they invite all these people that finish second on Jeopardy to come back and compete, and they can earn a spot in the Tournament of Champions. And um, all the second chance people that have won. They get slaughtered when they get to the Tournament <laughs> of Champions. They can't compete with the real Jeopardy champions. Well, Very interesting. The only thing that we could do is have the people that got to eight or nine questions come back. Right. Well, the, yeah, that's an idea. That should, would be the, we that should would come be up with thing. something for, you know, like a second chance. Right. That, that would be a second chance. Yeah. Not because your phone crapped out. But that guy was doing well. He was going, answering yeah. well on a good pace. So I want to do something for that guy. Uh, but uh, we'll see. All right. Now. Um, uh, but some of these these thousand uh, dollar minute truthers that I hear from and that write in the Facebook group, th- but this Facebook group has gotten just out of control. The, my favorite comment, and I, you know, I don't understand what goes on in this Facebook group because sometimes I'll find a, com- I'll see a comment and then it just disappears. I try to refind it, and I don't know if people delete it or whatever else because I try to show people because some of the cl- comments are so crazy. That I I just can't believe it. And one guy uh, tweeted yesterday, or wrote in the Facebook group yesterday, I really hate the way Frank mispronounces the names of cities, and he's probably going to end up paying alimony and child support. I told my wife that because I thought that was pretty funny. And she said, what do you mean? I'm gonna, she said, I'm going to divorce you because of the way that you mispronounce cities? I said, apparently. And I tried to find that comment, and I couldn't. But there's a lot of stuff that I try and find in there that I see, and then I, I can't find again. But that's – oh, so a lot of the um, truthers – and then we're going to get to this contest in a minute. But um, a lot of these truthers think that we were trying to sabotage the the contestant. I don't think people have an appreciation for is we want you to win. We want to give away the money. We're not – we're not – playing this game hoping you don't win. It's exciting when we have a winner. It's been too long since we've had a winner. You, All I've done is make the questions easier and easier. I'm looking at the questions today. There's one difficult question on there, and that's question 10. Everything else, no excuse for not getting these as far as I'm concerned. All right, uh, let us meet today's contestant, Brian in New Jersey. Brian, I'm sorry for going on such a lengthy uh, diatribe there. Hello, Frank. No problem. All right, Brian. Are you familiar with this game? I am. I feel a little weird now that you said they're all easy, so I'm going to be embarrassed. No, 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 no. Okay. Don't, don't, don't. Just understand that uh, everybody else has has made all sorts of faux pas before. So, yeah. so you're, you're I'll in good company. I'll take your advice. I'll, I'll go fairly slow. There you go. That's what you have it. to do. Right. Okay. You ready to go? Yes. All right. How many days are there in a week? Seven. What's an antonym for cold? Hot. What adult men's magazine was founded by Hugh Hefner? Playboy. What capitalistic board game is based on streets in Atlantic City? Monopoly. Who is the only Republican member of Congress from New York City? Only Republican member of Congress from New York City. Female. Greek. Oh, Nicole Melitopoulos. We'll give you that. What is Kramer's first name on Seinfeld? Cosmo. Jane Eyre was written by which of the Bronte sisters? 
Charlotte Bronte. What football team does Tom Brady play for? Tampa Bay Buccaneers. What language? Uh, we are out of time. Uh, We're out uh, of time. Uh, you got you got stumped on that Nicole uh, you, that Nicole question, uh, yeah, but you yeah, did yeah. very well. Uh, made it yeah. up, made it up to question question eight. I'm going to put you on hold. Uh, Kenneth okay. is going to give you going to get your information. We're going to send you a consolation prize. Okay. Okay. Thank All right, you. Hang on. Well done, Brian. Hang on. Um, and uh, so that was pretty good. See, he had a good strategy there, which is don't rush. And just get the question, think about it a second, and answer. Um, but that's, uh, that's eight questions. That's a gift card. Yeah. Well, so yeah. am I going to get in trouble because I gave him the hint on Nicole Maliotakis? No. No. He knew there, there was nothing. He, you didn't say anything that. Right. If anything, that ate up some of his time. Yeah. Right. So he gets a gift card. There you have it. That's See? fine. All right. It's within the rules. Within the rules. All right. Okay. So that was, uh, see, that's exciting. See, after the controversy of yesterday, we have uh, we have an, a semi-winner today. All right, it is Friday. That means it is uh, pizza day in uh, in our little stratosphere here, except for Kenneth, who refuses to eat dairy. We got him some garlic knots and I think some uh, something else, some zucchini fries or something. Um, what was your review of today's pizza, Mr. Uh, pretty good. What was that, like a meatball green pepper thing? Well, you know what? Here's what happened. I ordered I ordered um, a couple of pies, a couple of small pies and one large pie. And I did not get the accurate order. So I ordered one large pizza pie that was supposed to be half sausage. That, right? was, that was all plain. No. They charged me an extra $4 for that sausage, which never came. Then, um, and I don't want to, you know, badmouth the pizzeria because, uh, you know, we're, they're all small businesses. They don't need me bashing them. But uh, then I paid for another $4 for that, which I'm going to try and get back. I paid for an order of zucchini sticks for uh, young Kenneth. That came, right? Okay. Then the garlic knots, that came. Then it was supposed to be one Primavera pizza which has uh, all sorts of stuff on it, and then one Arrabbiata pizza. But they didn't bring that. They brought two Primavera pizzas. So, you know, that was a little disappointing. So uh, I uh, tried to bring this up with the folks at the Slice app, who I order from, because I really like that Slice app. And they said that the uh, the pizzeria that I had ordered from is closed, and they're trying. they're going to reach out to them today when they open and see about getting, uh, I don't know, a partial refund or, or something. But it's always a little disappointing when, when that happens. All right. In addition to being Veterans Day, today is National Heavy Metal Day, which explains why Alex Barnard is off today. It's also National Ice Cream Sunday Day. You know, it's funny. I didn't realize that. I had ice cream last night, which I very rarely do. And in terms of birthdays, a lot of interesting people having birthdays today. General George Patton would have celebrated his birthday today. Uh, The Russian writer Dostoevsky. Lucky Luciano, the gangster that played a a pivotal role in organizing the five families. It was his birthday today. Actor Leonardo DiCaprio celebrating his birthday today. And uh, actress Demi Moore, formerly the wife of... uh, Bruce Willis also celebrating her birthday today. You believe she's 60 years old? I mean, that's incredible. That 
you, you, have you seen what she looks like? She doesn't look like any 60-year-old that I've ever seen. You know who else looks incredible for her age? And she looks incredible for any age. But when I tell you the number of her, the, the, of her age, I'm going to blow your mind. She's clearly got like a portrait of Dorian Gray somewhere hidden in her attic. Stacy Dash. Stacy Dash, who was in Clueless and who for a time worked at uh, Fox News, she did this uh, TikTok with Alicia Silverstone. And somebody sent it to me because I do like that film, Clueless. And she looks incredible. She looks, uh, no exaggeration, she looks as good now as she did 30 years ago when she did that film. She looks maybe better. So, uh, so kudos to everybody celebrating a birthday today. And in my own life, it is um, my friend Andrea Tora. Well, I mean, my friend. We, we, I haven't seen her in 15 years, but uh, we, used to, um, we used to hang out from time to time. It is her birthday today. So happy birthday to her. And uh, also uh, happy birthday to attorney John Bostony celebrating a birthday today. And uh, happy birthday to everybody that's celebrating today. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in just a minute. I went to the dentist yesterday, and I told you yesterday how they always tell me, they always compliment me on my gums. And yesterday, they didn't do that. Well, they did, but in addition to um, in addition to complimenting me, the dental hygienist asked me, do you grind your teeth? I said, no, I don't think so. She said, well, I don't know. It's looking a little bit like you grind your teeth. Is it possible that you grind your teeth in your sleep when, without realizing? I said, maybe. It's not really something I thought about. And she said, and she seemed concerned about this because we have a good relationship, uh, Angela and I. She said, um, just so you know, your teeth should never, unless you're eating, your teeth, the teeth should never be touching. So she got me all paranoid. About this. So since then, I have been trying to make sure that my teeth are separated from one another. So all day since yesterday and into today, whenever I'm not speaking or eating, I have been making a conservative effort to keep my teeth separated from one another. And I have to say, that means my mouth has essentially not been at rest all day. And my jaw hurts now because I'm making a point to keep my teeth separated from one another because Angela's got me all paranoid. But I don't know what to do. I don't know if I should get a mouth guard or something. I don't know. Carmine, my son, grinds his teeth. Drives me crazy. Drives my wife crazy. I I put my finger right in there and I, I have him bite my finger instead of biting his teeth. Because it almost, when he bites his teeth or, uh, excuse me, grinds his teeth, for us it's like nails on a blackboard. You, we start shrieking. It's just uncomfortable just to hear the sound of him grinding his teeth, let alone watching him do it. And yet he does it without even thinking. By the way, your reward for being a good listener, I am going to post a recent photograph of Carmine on Facebook at uh, Facebook.com slash MoranoFan that I took yesterday. This is a photo uh, that I took of him when he had uh, just just pretty much woken up. So if you want to um, see that, go to Facebook.com slash Morano fan. All right. 15 seconds of fame. Next, we will give you an opportunity to be heard on any subject for 15 seconds. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. 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 It's The 
other side at midnight with Frank Morano. of midnight i am frank moreno uh, if you ever miss any portion of the show uh you can just uh, make sure you subscribe to the podcast just search uh the other side of midnight with frank moreno on any podcast app hit the subscribe button if you want to do us a solid you can uh, leave us a five-star review on itunes or as governor cuomo says on apple and um also you want to especially if you live in the new york area you want to subscribe to the Frank Morano Interviews and More podcast because uh, you're going to get access to all sorts of uh, all sorts of other stuff as well, including the individual interviews we do on this show and a lot of local commentary that you don't hear on the rest of the show. So be sure to subscribe to both of those. And uh, there might be a new edition of the Racket Report as of today. I will uh, bring that to you. Uh, I'll I'll have an update for you on uh, Monday or on social media if you just follow me on Facebook, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. Without further ado, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Christina in New Jersey. Hi, Frank. You should have definitely let the guy play the game from last night, the $1,000 question. And this guy you show, he's so mean. I wonder if the $1,000 comes out of his pocket. Mm, Joe. Hey, it's Joe from Ontakama. I want to wish everybody a happy Veterans Day. And I want to congratulate Lee Zeldin on a great race. It was a pleasure volunteering, fam. Have a great weekend, Frank. Mike. Good morning, Frank. Frank, when you go on your time travel journey, those time machines don't come equipped with radios. Perhaps you could take Diane with you so you'll have some stimulating conversation. Have a good weekend. Raji. In the 10-question game, please allow one wrong answer or one pass so participants at least have a chance to win half a prize of $500 instead of the 1000 Jimmy. Yeah, I think your pizza situation got screwed up because there was a communication breakdown between the pizza store and the app. I think the store was, if you just talk to the store, they'll understand you. They're probably quickly scanning on a screen and they messed up. Neil. What a show, Frank. First that Looney and then the sausage pizza. How much more are you going to torture me, Frank? How much more? George. Roger. Yeah, hi. Um, I wish all the veterans there, hope they enjoyed their Veterans Day. Um, After that call uh, disconnected yesterday, the very next call also dropped. My initial thought was that it was um, some wrong station phone. John. Hey, Frank, I'm going to have to denounce you today. You left me on hold for 52 minutes during the first hour and didn't let me answer my question. Frankie. 
Joey from Onkakama. Thanks for your efforts with the Zeldin campaign. Anthony, how you doing? How you doing? How you doing in Staten Island? Ina. Catering Sloan. Prostate cancer doesn't kill you fast. Radiation does. You know. Howard. I had one of the easiest times in the service. I was a general's cook in Hawaii. I belonged to a Jewish singles group and I had a great time there. And finally, George. Yes, sir. Uh, the woman that was on the airport and the movie Airport that was talking to us, that's Barbara Beaversley, Beaver's mother, and Leave the Beaver. Yes, uh, we actually have covered that before, uh, George. Thank you uh, for mentioning that. Uh, the movie is Airplane. Airport is also a good film. That's with uh, Dean Martin and I think Burt Lancaster. Fine film. But that's one of the airplane is one of those instances where the parody is actually better than the film that it's satirizing. That's the truth. Frank Morano, good day.